0: Hi everyone, thank you so much for hopping on to the Blockchain Education Summit. We are live now and we'd like to welcome everyone to this broadcast. We have three marvelous panels that are going to educate everyone about the current events of the day in artificial intelligence, blockchain, cryptocurrency and so much more. My name is Jackie Cooper, I'm the CEO of the Blockchain Legal Institute and my background is as a lawyer and an educator. And I'd like to welcome and introduce my co-founder, Matt Rogers. Matt, how are you doing today?
1: Good. Thank you, Jackie. It's exciting to be here at our first event. We've got a bunch of really quality content coming on, coming up over the next you know hour or more. So let's let's get going.
0: So our first actual speaker is our keynote, and it's the premiere of Bermuda. And we are very excited to have him be our keynote speaker. And we actually pre-recorded this because of his busy schedule, uh, because he's traveling around the world. So we'd like to introduce now the premier of Bermuda,
2: the Honorable David Burt.
0: Hi everyone, I would like to thank everyone for being on the Blockchain Legal Institute's global broadcast and I have, we have the distinct honor to have the Honorable Premier David Burt be our keynote speaker for today's events. I want to welcome you today for the keynote. How are you doing today, sir?
3: Uh, Jackie, lovely. Things are working well, so I'm grateful.
0: Yes, of course. And today, we actually are broadcasting this globally. We have over 22 speakers from around the world for three different panels. And I'm very excited for the information that they're going to share. And you're actually leading this off. So with this, um, I'm going to ask you the first question that you and I have discussed. As a leader in the blockchain and development and legal world, Bermuda, who I had the privilege to visit uh, during the, the last conference, is always thinking one step ahead to lead the globe for innovation and technology. What guidance can you give those listening who want to use Bermuda as a role model? And where do you see the next steps are needed in the blockchain community?
3: Well, uh, Jackie, I sincerely hope you had a wonderful time, Bermuda. It was such a pleasure um, having you here. And so from the perspective of what it is, the next steps and the things to certainly emulate, I mean, I do know that there's been a number of jurisdictions that have copied um, our legislation. That is something that we encourage. It's not something that we view as a negative because we know that Bermuda cannot be all things to all people, and we don't intend on uh, being so. But I think the most important thing to do is the focus on the core and the core of this is, is that for any new emerging industry, yes, innovation is necessary, but the key thing is certainly compliance, ensuring that we get it right. Inside where there are so many, I guess I would say that you know, distributed ledgers do enable bad actors in a way that they may not have been able before. Um, if you are doing something from a sound regulatory setup, you have to be aware of that. And then you have to make sure that whatever you are doing takes into account all of those particular challenges so that's what i would say in the first instance i mean i think that it is important to be innovative i think it's important to make sure that you have regulatory clarity um, from bermuda's perspective because we specifically define digital assets as our own separate asset class not trying to shoehorn them into something else i think that is helpful and that has provided us uh, certainly um, <clears throat> a level of regulatory clarity that certain persons may not have had and in other spaces And so from that aspect, I think those are the things that are important. I mean, in Bermuda, we've certainly invested in our uh, capital. We uh, we we offered free fintech education for every uh, single uh, person in the country if they want to be a part of it. We have a continually growing industry here with more and more uh, young Bermudians and not so young Bermudians uh, being a part of it. And the thing is that you have to continue to innovate. So we started in 2018. Um, we looked at where we were in 2019, we added regulatory clarity for derivatives. Um, in 2021, we added a new tier license structure, a test license, recognizing that, you know, some of the burden, people may not have their ideas fully fleshed out, so they can still access a world respected regular in the BMA and not necessarily um, have to go through all of the things that you would have to if you're trying to, you know, launch a business and sell globally. So there's a lot of things that, um, you know, I would recommend. Uh, countries and companies etc to be looking at because that's the way that you build it we are building a new industry um and that new industry is built on a tra- a technology that i think will be transformative but with all technologies that are transformative they have their own particular risks and they have their own particular rewards. and as long as you're making sure from a regulatory perspective you are managing the risks i think that you can you know foster innovation as we've managed to do here in bermuda but I'll tell you the truth, it is not a very easy balance. It is very, very difficult because the compliance requirements are significantly high. Um, and AML um, and counter terrorist it's, it's not
4: fun at all.
0: No, it's not. And you're right. There's a lot of layers to this. Um, I know some of what you just shared also relates to the second area that I wanted to ask you about. It's been your vision to develop incubators and economic development using distributive ledger technology across the fintech community to include the areas of insurance, climate and business. What partnerships do you want to develop or expand on for the economic vision that you have for Bermuda, because I know that there are many announcements that happened at the last FinTech conference, and I'm sure that there's a lot of things that are happening that uh, you would like to see in the in the future, both now and in the near future.
3: Well, I think that, and we're talking about, you know, incubators, one of the things that I say is that, you know, you have incubators in different cities around the world, but I happen to regard my entire country as an incubator. You know, we're 20 square miles, 65,000 people, Um, you know, everything is here. Um, And we think that it's the ideal size for companies to go ahead and test their products and services to make sure they're in a supportive environment before they scale those Uh, matters to the world um, and those items because you know we understand the place where we play we know that um, someone is not going to come through to hoping to make a significant return um, from our market itself Um, that's not where we're successful we are successful as being a place where you can have solid and stable regulation that allows be innovative to serve the rest of the world But that was easy in insurance because people know what insurance is and though we've innovated in insurance, you know, insurance has been around for a very long time. Digital assets, of course, is just at the very beginning of its development. And so from that aspect, we want to apply the same principles where companies can come here, work with the government, work inside of our local ecosystem, deliver projects that are relevant to our citizens who haven't had the benefit of certain items that have happened, even though one of the wealthiest countries in the world, you know, certain things like PayPal, certain things like those things, you know, aren't as easy for the exact same reasons which we stated, you know, those large companies are going, not going to focus on small markets. They're going to focus on uh, big markets. So, I mean, we're open for business. We welcome those type of partnerships. Um, as we move forward, um, as this, you know, from a regulatory perspective, um, there will be hopefully a chance to demonstrate our I guess I would say are regulatory bona fides and deal with matters of equivalence with other jurisdictions of the future. But, you know, with our discussions now, whether it's the, with Mika um, in the European Union, they're not looking at, at any equivalence for a while now. Um, and other jurisdictions, you know, the US it will be difficult to get equivalents because they don't actually have a regime <laughs> that's been clearly defined um, at this point in time. But I think the other part of it is that we also want to work with countries who may not want to take on the burden of trying to stand up a regulatory regime for a digital asset space, which is not easy at all managing this particular risk, and are happy to say if you want to, you know, construct or you know act or interact in our market, sell uh, items to our citizens, et cetera. We're happy if you get a license removal. We know that you can be trusted because if you go through the remote licensing process, undoubtedly you've been checked. Uh, from, you know, head to toe and everywhere else in between.
0: (laughs) Very well said. So, you know, we're, you and I are all about the future. We're all about the youth. And so with, um, that being said, how are we able to educate the next generation to inspire them to be the next generation of innovators, both on Bermuda as well as other places, because those youth are going to be looking at Bermuda also as a leader.
3: Well, I would say, Jackie, the first thing um, is certainly we need help from passionate educators such as yourself, you know, (laughs) and, you know, sharing the stories and finding innovative ways to share the stories and tell the stories as you have uh, managed, you know, to do. And for this, it's, I think it's going to not be as difficult as we think. I think the younger people will certainly get it a lot quicker than persons like you and I, who are not so young, but I certainly think the younger people will get it. You know, I, I have two degrees in IT my seven-year-old showed me something on the computer that I didn't know. <laughs> you know, these are the type. He's like, "No, Daddy, you do it this way." I'm like,
5: "How do you know that?"
3: <laughs> you know, I went to school for this. This is not okay. But I think, I think that um, they will uh, certainly, um, you know, uh, be there. But when you look at, you know, the books of which um, you are written that focus on, you know, blockchain and fintech that can relate it to a market or to relate it to an age group, these are persons who will be able to get these ideas and concepts, which are, when you look at it, a very different way of thinking. For those of us who think literally and otherwise, it can be very abstract to think those things where everything is just interchangeable all the time and these things can happen and transact. You know, it's a difficult concept to get because it just doesn't mesh with what we've learned, our life experience currently. And so I think, you know, I think that's uh, certainly a way, Um, you know, but I say the younger generation will get this from the very beginning of time, you know, my my son, in you know, when he goes off to university, if there are still universities, then he will, you know, it, it be transferring of value will be as simple as sending a WhatsApp. He won't even worry about certain things that we have to do. I mean, you might not even ever know what a you know a checkout counter is at a supermarket or anything else because there'll be tags and stuff. So, but I mean, this is the future. This is the truth. This is what we have, and so we have to focus on making sure that we're teaching the skills of thinking. We have to make sure we're teaching the skills of how to understand, you know, the basic concepts around it versus just the technical aspects so that the persons can actually understand what this is, the power of what it is, and think about things that they can create using this. Um, And so, you know, I can go back to programming, and, you know, there were times when it was just, you know, if-then-else statements, all the rest, and then you get to raise, and you get to complex things, and other things like that. And, you know, the thought process that you have about the problems you can solve using those things are far different than the ones at the very basic level. And as long as those concepts are understood, we will have our younger people designing and thinking in uh, that uh, way. So I think that that's the way to go about it. It's the work uh, for passionate educators, such as yourself. It's work of governments to make sure that these are things that are inside of the, the curriculum, just like the internet, just like the basic levels. You know, this is the internet was the data, blockchain will be to value. And we just need to make sure that we are instilling those concepts and theories for our young people to understand.
6: I agree
0: with you and, and I, I cannot thank you enough because um, everything that you've shared really does kick off our broadcast in such a way because we have a panel about um, AI and the EU laws. We have a panel about social good within blockchain. We have a panel about, you know, supply chain, commercial and fintech. You know, again, these are all areas that um, overlap and cross over and, there's going to be a lot of rich discussion from everyone who's going to be attending the panels, and then the follow-up. So, any last-minute thoughts that you would like to share with those that are listening this uh, to the live stream, but this is also going to be um, evergreen and recorded. So, there'll be those that are going to be listening after. So, what insights, uh, last-minute insights, would you like to share?
3: Uh, well, you know, I think that uh, if I could say it more broadly, I just want to thank you for your work. Uh, thank you for your friendship and support. Um, uh, of Bermuda. I think that um, unquestionably, you know, relating these concepts in ways that uh, younger people can understand, and even not so young people uh, can understand, I think, you know, are uh, particularly helpful. I mean, from the Bermuda perspective, you know, we are excited about the future. Um, It's not easy, uh, because there are certainly difficult uh, things that we have to navigate, but as I look at what the future holds, not just for Bermuda, but for the world and all the things which we're talking about, about social good, et cetera, we're barely scratching the surface. I mean, you know, when the internet became, you know, commercialized, I'm young enough uh, to be one of those people who, when I was, you know, in, in high school, you know, you would go to the... Uh, uh, the bookstore, (laughs) and they would have, you know, the plastic cases of AOL discs inside and everything else and go ahead and sign up, you know, and that was the beginning. But who would have thought, you know, at those points in time, you know, AOL, you know, chat rooms and browsing and all the rest that the internet would be doing what it is now, where, you know, you can watch a movie anytime you want. You can do this anytime you want. There's so many different things uh, that you're able to do, and we just don't even know and understand what the future possibilities will be. And I think that it is a question of hope. It is a question of making sure uh, that there are persons who have the power to do good, understanding and recognize the power of this technology. And I think it also takes it for governments to look at this dispassionately. Recognize the risks, because there's risk in everything. There's risk in the internet. There's risk in our traditional financial system. Risk exists no matter what. Just because there's a new technology that may make doing some nefarious activities more easy doesn't mean that technology itself is bad and we have to look at the positives that can come from it while at the same time manage the risks and I think if we approach it from that perspective and the community focuses on solving real world problems and not talking in very high-minded technical terms but saying this is something that we can do that can work better and that can benefit the citizens of the world I think that's probably the best way to go forward.
0: I cannot even summarize or thank you enough for everything that you've shared because I think that this is a wonderful keynote and kickoff for our broadcast. So thank you so much for everything that you're doing for Bermuda and everyone else on the globe. And I am very going to be very excited to hand you a copy of the Bitcoin Cinderella and the Pink Sands Treasure of Bermuda the next time I come back.
3: Oh my goodness.
0: See the history of Bermuda told through the eyes of children and also including the FinTech community. So I'm very excited to be able to share that with you. In the meantime, for everyone who's listening to this broadcast, let's go to the next panel. Thank you so much. Have a great Absolutely.
3: day. Absolutely, and look forward to tuning in. Thank you. Take care, Jackie. Thank you.
0: And so we are back. And um, Matt, I know that we're gonna have three panels. We have panelists that are waiting in the green room right now. And the first panel is gonna be a discussion about the EU and artificial intelligence. So um, any thoughts on that as we bring everyone into our live show?
1: Yeah, excellent, very exciting and big thank yous to the premier. And it was it's inspirational, of course, and to see people taking leadership is definitely what this about is about. We want to be around uh, and surround ourselves with other people that care about what's going on here in the industry and want to you know, get clarity because clarity uh, can allow us to, to build and um, have better relationships. So very inspiring messages from the Premier, the Honorable Premier and we're super, super happy to have them involved. So yeah, uh, coming up next basically is a discussion about uh, the EU and some of the approaches the EU is taking, which has definitely been interesting right and they've been active so to speak and we've got some incredible uh panelists enrique magnus diego patrick suzanne um very interesting uh things coming up here so without further ado all right let's get going you want to you want to make the introductions then jackie or should we? I
0: i will i'll just quickly um tell you a little bit about this distinguished panel Um, Our moderator today is Michael Borelli, he's with AIM Partners and he is a leader in the artificial intelligence area in terms of security and the financial services and consulting and he's heavily involved in everything going on within the EU. Um, Diego Torres is going to be popping in. He's actually an artificial intelligence scientist, and he's creating a platform called Jada. I know he is en route. Um, Magnus Jones, a phenomenal individual who's with the EY Global Metaverse team and different blockchain organizations. Um, His history has been over 10 years in the blockchain world. world. Again, it's hard to summarize sometimes everyone's background. We have uh, Enrique Anzar, who is on route. If he's not already coming in, he might be in the green room because he messaged me. And he is the co-founder of the Real Fund. It's an asset tokenization project. And he also is with the Government Blockchain Association, and he's located in Spain. We have Suzanne Mooresfield who's the global head of accounting solutions for Luca, which is an organization that Involves data driven international corporate reporting and quantitative research. Very involved and very high level. We all need that. We have the professor from uh, Bandari from India, who um, is a senior professor who's been teaching in India law and research for over 45 years and has published over 85 publications. We have Patrick Newenchowder, who's an AI project developer in Switzerland. He has been with the Swiss Fair Trade AG, and um, he's also been involved with NFTs and so many other things. Uh, Patrick, you're gonna have to expand more on that because your background is so diverse. And we have Yev Mulchnik, who is a corporate and securities attorney with a broad range of information from digital assets to Web3 and securities. And she also is involved with many um, online platforms here in the United States. So we have a tight group of individuals that are very knowledgeable of what's going on in the EU, as well as other parts of the world. Michael, I'm going to let you go ahead and start off. I know we might have people popping in late because that is what happens in a live show. Go on for it.
7: <laughs> First and foremost, thank you, uh, Jackie and Matt. Pleasure to be here. And, um, you know, it's an honor to be able to moderate this distinguished panel. So i um, Guess we all we all are familiar with um, EU law and as you said, Mika and AI. But uh, I think it's best just to uh, dive straight in there. So I'm going to start off with um, I'm going to start off with you, Magnus, if that's all right. So uh, how would you characterise the EU stance on AI and crypto um, and blockchain regulation, and, and how has this impacted other regions such as Asia, North America, and Africa? <sighs>
8: Yeah, well thank you and um that's that's quite a wide question in some matter as as blockchain and ai is is two totally different uh, sides sort of saying but they are interconnected naturally um and i would say you know on on taking the one that is uh, most clear right now and that's the crypto side of the mika the markets and crypto asset regulation that we are having now entering slowly into force successfully um over the new year uh, that has led to naturally when you have such a requirement that you need to be registered in the EU as, i.e., a legal entity if you are to address uh, EU citizens. That naturally that that drives you know uh, foreign uh, companies to register here regardless of where you are in the world if you are to address european citizens uh, which most are uh, by per se you you want to address people all over the world so so naturally in that kind of way it call it affects uh, and and drives innovation, but we also see it in the other way. That you know, um, just today I'm in Tallinn, uh, where I have just hosted a five hours meetup on Mika and discussed it pretty in in detail here. And what we also see clearly is that one thing is that a a huge enterprise can afford to go and register in the EU. You know, it's about twenty 000 to thirty thousand euros as a fee to register. you have to pay lawyers to do a legal opinion on your tokens, etc. It will cost you money. But for the startups, they, if they don't have the funding, they will more or less just be forced to go other places, have a legal disclaimer saying EU citizens are prohibited to buy this one. And then my bet and, and from working with several of these ones are that they are going to go other places like Vietnam, South America, Asia, which is not naturally directed towards it. So uh, I think there's there's many ways, call it, to see this landscape and not see it totally black and white in, in some matter. But to answer the question, yes, naturally, it, it affects all places, because right now we are uh, assisting clients literally all over the world in terms of being compliant and the registration process here in uh, in the EU.
7: Excellent. I, well, I think with the deadline next year, you're going to be a very busy man. And I couldn't ha- help but notice, Suzanne. Um, saw you there, smiling and looking very um, sort of uh, <laughs> con- contemplative. There, so uh, I feel as though you have some stuff to add.
2: You know, it, 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 I mean, honestly, Ma- Magnus makes so many wonderful points, and and I couldn't help but just sort of nod and smile. And you know, the issue of the costs of compliance with Mika and sort of getting. Um, the registration, and I, and I should add dis, uh, the disclaimer of, despite my blaring American accent, I live and work in in London and interact um, with uh, the EU regulations as well as the UK ones and the US ones. But um, that's a really important thing, and it sort of dovetails a little bit with you know one of the questions that that I was you know thinking about for this panel, which is sort of what are the practical ramifications for companies as they're thinking about the the new EU regulations that are, you know, coming. And some of the regulations aren't completely nailed down yet. So there's also that piece where there's a little bit of uncertainty about how exactly some of these things will completely kind of play out. But it will be costly, and some companies, practically speaking, Will have to make the choice you know or have the choice thrust upon them not to participate in the eu you know and and now they might be able to pick and choose among countries you know find a, a country within the eu but once things are more harmonized then it will be more of a sort of block decision if you will and you know i'll pause there and and, and let others chime in too does anyone
7: have any uh, additional comments there
9: I'll just make one kind of broad comment, you know, and and somebody who operates uh, in the US um, within and who's been in the space since 2016, kind of trying to navigate such an uncertain and tumultuous regulatory climate. um, I think Nika offers this glimmer of hope in terms of transparency, in terms of opening up dialogue between Web3 projects and innovators. And, and the regulators, and that's what we're missing in the United States. So I applaud the effort, and it'll—it's going to have a number of kinks, um, and you know, and, until it fully rolls out at the end of next year, I think in preparation for it, we're going to start, you know, coming against some of these kinks and at least working them out, at least trying to, you know, continuing that that innovation cycle, um, but understanding the parameters of compliance. So I applaud. Nika, as i think a lot of practitioners do um and, and excited to see you know some of the projects that that come through under the nico licensing
7: interesting um i could see patrick uh chom uh, chomping, chomping at the bit there and i think um patrick if i may um do you think there are any inherent conflicts or synergies between certain countries um i think um as magnus mentioned switzerland there for example um in terms of how they're navigating particular eu regulations and policies um and also how how what um do you think the decentralized nature of blockchain has um what part does that have to play
10: yeah, sure. In Switzerland, I, I'm living in Switzerland. So uh, yeah, we have a very nice regulation. It's actually quite old one. 2021, we we basically did the regulation on, on blockchain. Um, and it's like everything in Switzerland, they made it pretty easy. and just said, we take legislation we have. So an NFT is, is just an object you have at home, and or, or art you have at the wall. So it's very simple to to navigate it. Uh, Mika makes it uh, very difficult now. Uh, so far, normally we um, consulted our our project to just say we don't uh, allow uh, U.S. customers and regular and do that over the secondary market. Uh, most likely, the same will happen now more and more to like no US, no EU, and just regulate it over the secondary market. Um, I don't know. I in all these cases, I ask myself with a, with technology like 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 blockchain and AI, um, what how much sense does a, a a country or in this case a, a EU regulation make? There will always be a way around it and, and the tech is moving so fast, the regulation has no chance. So I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I, I don't, it, it's nice. It's like, like, uh, like we said before, it's nice to have a regulation. Some big companies like it, um, but most of the companies in AI and in, in blockchain are startups and fast moving companies. So I'm not sure
7: <laughs> where this is really going to. The mantra of uh, startups, as supposedly, is move fast and break things. Um, be very interested to uh, hear what Magnus thinks about that, and how that fits into the uh, within the general um, expanding regulatory landscape.
8: Well, I think uh, I, I clearly see the the points of of Patrick, naturally, of of how the market is and how it's functioning, who develops stuff, and that's down to the fact you know we we work with everything from the smallest one two actors in the basement who runs straight into a decentralized structure of running a DAO a DAO foundation as clients or doing a decentralized exchange for that matter towards assisting small medium large entities towards public case, you know, I'm assisting Adidas on their Web3 journey. So it's quite widespread in the actors we are working with. And I can assure you that we meet up on several of these actors. And I can also tell you, I'm invited to so many uh, DeFi conferences where I just have a presentation that is called the party killer. And everyone sits there and is like, who is this guy? What is this doing? And in the end of the presentation, it's like, Hmm, this makes sense we actually need to be compliant here because you don't have any choice because if you want to reach the mass market we can just look into the statistics of for example DeFi decentralized finance there's less than 2 million users out there per month that uses DeFi, and that's not even unique uses. So that's just to underlay the point that this industry will never ever be able to scale itself per se, how they have this horrible user interface experiences how they ignore smart contract reviews in terms of fat fingers in the code etc so there's so many things that call it the ordinary world of regulators doesn't like around it and it will never scale so in order for this to scale you have to have Ironically, centralized actors like banks, finance institutions, Mm -hmm. who's been sitting still waiting for Mika to come in place because the C-level group, they have no clue what this is about. But they are saying, if we are to do something like the marketing division or others are suggesting, we need to have a framework around it. So that's totally right that it was mentioned. Mika will drive innovation from this kind of perspective. but, But still, it's... It's, it, it's down to call it uh, a complexity level there where I think these small actors who wants to be more on the anarchistic side, they have to comply. Because if BlackRock or JP Morgan or Barclays or the other ones that are driving the landscape right now and ensuring and, and a bull run on Bitcoin, if they are to buy in there, their auditors, their accountants, they will have to be hundred percent assured that these tokens that they have acquired are coming from a place where they have at least aml measures in place anti-money laundering and kyc or at least kyt know your transactions in so matter so in that way i see a split in the market some might go totally hide my ass and duck duck whatever and vpn solutions you know Mm. that's all fine. That's a totally different market, but then you don't get the institutional investors into your product and you will never scale and succeed in so matter. So it's going to be two worlds out there. And I would say maybe a little bit, unfortunately for the industry in terms of it's killing innovation also, um, but ensuring, call it more compliance. That's the way we will see it go now with, with Mika and, and all the surroundings that I think we can go more into detail, but I'll I'll pause there.
7: Well, we uh, covered uh, EU right you know, EU regulations there quite extensively. And I've um, got a question for Enrique. Um, so, Enrique, do you, in in this sense, can you briefly explain how the EU has approached AI, crypto and blockchain regulations
11: so far? Yes, uh, thank you, Michael. Um, well, this... Um, this uh, um... Uh, the approach that uh, the European U- Union is, uh, is taking towards these uh, three areas is uh, not something new. It is part of, uh, of a bigger and um, very ambitious initiative that was launched by the European Commission back in 2015. Uh, it's called the Digital Single Market. And uh, uh, basically, it wants to integrate and harmonize the digital market across uh, the European Union member states. Uh, the idea is to, to ensure that individuals and business, businesses can access and engage in online activities, right, under conditions of fair competition, irrespective of where they are, or what is their nationality and what is their location. So the, 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 the aim, the ultimate goal is, is to generate significant economic growth, create jobs and, uh, and assert Europe, Europe's position as a global leader in the digital economy. So. In this, as part of this uh, digital uh, single market, there are three initiatives. One is artificial intelligence, and there are uh, a number of projects at uh, the European Parliament level, which has, have not been uh, 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 formally launched uh, yet. Um, the, the expected date is 2025. And basically, what the European Union is doing is to take uh, a, a human centric uh, approach and defining certain um, um, uh, levels of uh, regulation applicable to um, AI initiatives based on risk. So it is a risk-based uh, framework. And um, it also introduces some um, uh, hefty fines for uh, those who don't comply that uh, may even reach 6% of their um, annual um, global turnover of uh, those who are not aligned to the, to the law. On, on, the, on the crypto side, You have discussed, you have mentioned several times, uh, Mika. Definitely, Mika creates a a unified digital um, economy that paves the way for harmonized crypto regulations. One thing that we have complained uh, in Europe a lot is that there were no regulations uh, affecting crypto. And this is true to a certain extent, um, because we did not have until recently because uh, MICA was launched uh, this uh, year, 2023. It is not fully applicable yet. It will be applicable, um, it, w- it will be um, enforced at the end of 2024, and then it will be for, um, fully applicable in 2025, which in a way um, raises some of the points that Patrick uh, um, was uh, kind of uh, mentioning. It is, well, will MICA be applicable in 2025? where uh, the crypto uh, industry is developing the way it is developing, right? Will all the concepts that are being addressed by uh, Mika still be there uh, in 2025? And this is a big question mark. But what I was trying to say is that uh, we have complained that uh, there were no uh, regulations applicable to blockchain. And this is only partially true, because um, it is true that there were no specific blockchain regulations, but there are many things that we are doing in the crypto and in the blockchain um, front that are subject to um, other laws, consumer laws, uh, securities laws, et cetera, et cetera, right? And then um, one, one risk, one very serious risk that I uh, personally see is that, well, those who uh, ignore those um, laws that still apply no matter whether it is crypto or not crypto are going to, um, are putting themselves and their clients and uh, and uh, citizens in general in a, in a difficult uh, position. And this may actually trigger some um, industry uh, disaster, right? We are seeing big things with FTX in the US, right? Lack of governance, lack of compliance, and the whole thing is affecting the entire industry, right? Anyway, that's that's a kind of a reflection. What I was um, trying to say is that, that yes, we have um, Mika as a very interesting framework because it clarifies a number of concepts. It deals mainly with utility tokens, stable coins, and uh, um, e-money. And yes, we cross fingers and hope that this will be sufficient for what we need to be regulated when it uh, comes into, into place, into force at the beginning of 2024. And finally, uh, you mentioned the blockchain. Well, it is very interesting that the European Union is launching an initiative um, to create a European sandbox. Um, we have um, this year, 2023, uh, the European Union pilot regime on on market infrastructures um, was launched. And basically this is a a temporary um, sandbox where um, companies or um, people, um, entrepreneurs can do certain things that are very, very interesting. In my perspective, this actually can change the paradigm of tokenization. To give you an example, it allows for the tokenization of of, uh, companies um, which is uh, pretty new in, in, in many of the countries in the European Union. It is totally new in, in Spain. Um, it provoked a change in the um, Spanish uh, um, commercial law or companies law, right? Still, there are some requirements where tokens need to be registered at the register that does not exist, which is a bit of a problem because now the tokenization activity on the securities um um, on the on the securities token um, is um, is uh, is paralyzed, but we hope that all these things will be uh, resolved uh, soon. And I think I'll stop here. But uh, definitely, this is part of a broader initiative. Uh, it is it is taking uh, uh, it is having an impact. Still, yes, things uh, things are coming pretty slowly, but uh, are happening. And I think this is all for the for the better of this uh, of this industry.
7: Well, <clears throat> thank you for that. Um, I know you you touched on the some commercial aspects there, and again, I saw Suzanne's lies. I thought when you said that. So, Suzanne, do you mind um, discussing some specific cases where EU blockchain regulation has had a direct impact on global operations of companies?
2: Sure, and and I mean, you know, I can't agree enough with actually all the panelists and their different views so far brought to bear. One of really, really practical thing that, that I think has been touched on is, is that mo- most of the companies that we're seeing and talking to are, are deciding where they need to ramp up if they need to their internal controls, corporate governance, kind of some of those basic things, whether they're kind of crypto or not, where they want to be able to scale, they want to get institutional investment in it, the, they want, you know, participants in, in, you know, from different aspects of the market, and they need those things in place. And especially, you know, and Reckie mentioned sort of the bad press and, you know, that three letter word, you know, name of their company, you know, that, that that was one of the things that came up is that there was missing some sort of core sort of things like that and and what we're seeing is companies in order to be more you know grow in their commercial sort of reach are building in those kinds of you know up ramping that up or making it stronger or making sure they're getting you know external help with that if need be and get external advice and sometimes what that means is they do need um, to hire external support for that, and, you know, all, all manner of these things, whether it's taxes or whatever, and 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 or IFRS reporting or your cyber security, all of these things are showing up on everyone's sort of radar because somewhat they're hard-coded in regulation and for and upcoming regulation and sometimes it's just the the growth of the industry and the maturation of the industry if you will and so that's sort of a piece of the story that we're really seeing a lot of and and so support providers and and i'm avoiding the word service providers on purpose because of how it's used in in mika where you know a service provider has a very specific kind of meaning there, but there's, you know, support providers who aren't, who are supporting the industry, you know, Luke is an example, we do post-trade sort of analytics, data, software compliance, and it's after the trade, we're not actually a service provider, and so there's all this support sort of that's needed, I think, and we're seeing a lot of increased demand for that, not just from us, but in general, depending on what your needs are, or what an entity's need, commercial sort of needs are as well our
7: well, well glad to have such uh, you know expert insight from yourself and a regulatory standpoint now we're we're also very lucky here that we have um, an AI specialist uh, so welcome Diego Torres and Diego um how do EU laws impact AI or blockchain companies that operate globally and I know you you uh, jada has international operations in that sense and um, do you think there are any challenges or opportunities here?
5: Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you everyone for having me. Um, the bottom line is, is that those regulations, they are a reflection of of the people, right? And the mechanisms that they have to protect themselves against or whatever it is that they're protecting themselves against. Right? And what I love so much about European law is that it's very clear, it's very concise, and there's no, there's no, broadness or generalization you know it's very very specific what can be done and what cannot be done and uh, as a result the upcoming uh, European Union Artificial Intelligence Act is gonna help out a lot because it's it's just very clear you know like what what's okay what's not okay and uh, for us it's only done good because it was thanks to that act that we were aware that, okay, we need to have a, at least one entity registered in the European Union. So we have that done. And uh, there's also very clear import and export, um, you know, classifications, you know, like if it's, if it's, um, if it's uh, you know, regular uh, machine learning model or if it's like a high risk <laughs> one, or if it's like, a, like definitely no, you can't run this AI in, in our territory uh and why right so since there's that clarity it's easier to be like okay well our ai doesn't pass regulations this is what we need to do so it passed and uh it'll save you time in legal fees of course because there's no guessing there's no hoping to see if if it'll pass you know because the, the, the the parameters are there and they're very clear and uh for the people that are just starting to develop their AI models, they can actually use the the upcoming act as a a starting point. You know, like, okay, well, these features are are permitted within the territory and these are not, you know, allowed. So let's focus on these features and these, well, we're just gonna leave them for, if they ever become legal or or just forget about them, right? Uh, So that also saves development time. And it's something that well you just can't get another territory right because the the more loopholes the more gray area there is in the law there's more flexibility right but that same flexibility is a slow and painful killer and uh that's why the eu ai, uh, AI act in this case is very very uh critical to the future development of um of ai it gives that clarity that we just didn't have when we were doing and by we i mean like humanity right you know like when we were starting to do like the blockchain stuff or like the uh encryption algorithms we had to we had to break some eggs for those laws to come to fruition right like you know uh, i remember some very early very early back in the day uh when the first like major uh, encryption algorithms, maybe like two or three decades ago, you know, those really, really hard encryption things like the um, homomorphic encryption. The technology came first, and then the regulation started um, piling up, right? You know, like, well, this technology has to be uh, accessible at the federal level, and has to comply with these, uh, with these specific uh, parameters for, for the, the protection of of uh federal level data and things like that Interesting. and uh yeah but that only happened because the technology came first and then based on that it was how can we uh make sure that it's used and deployed in a way that doesn't affect um, any government agency and the consumers and the retail and the companies and the institutions, you know, at, at all levels
7: um, Well, you've touched on a uh, um, You've covered a few points there Diego and I think um, I think it'd be interesting to get uh, Yev's uh, perspective on um, forthcoming EU policies and proposals and um, What you think could significantly impact the blockchain economy um please please feel free to you know be be as broad as 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 you can but specific where necessary
5: well blockchain is just
1: oh uh diego i think this question was for you i'm sorry to jump oh it was oh sorry 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 about that that's in some other place yeah go ahead
5: i'm gonna mute my thing before i
9: yeah, I mean, I, I think kind of broadly speaking, I think the fundamentals still exist for a lot of decentralized uh, projects, and that is, you know, thinking through um, the proper interface to interact with with kind of more centralized actors. Uh, so, you know, creating a, a legal wrapper, thinking through um, Siloing out different operations of your your project, and whether that you know includes a component of having like a dev company, having a token issuer, having more of a, a community-based DAO as well, um, and the the liability exists cross-border. So just having a strong legal legal wrapper in place that protects the the, the members, the investors, and and the the licensing now with Mika as well is is incredibly important and remains important just because um you're sort of building in these layers in these onion layers of, of protections for for the project
7: well yeah i think you you've touched on an interesting point there about how regulation starts uh starts um it sets a good blueprint for the for the industry and i think i don't know if the professor's still with us but maybe if i address the the question to to all panelists and um and See who wants to answer this one. And we, we uh, Diego, briefly touched on GDPR as the major regulatory framework in the EU. So, out of the panelists, how do you think GDPR interacts with blockchain technology, uh, particularly in the cases of public ledgers?
8: I, I can give you one concrete example in so matter because uh, I'm not sure all of you are aware, but in Norway, the business entity register. They have created a solution for the shareholder register, the stock register on the public mainnet of Ethereum. Not the private one, but the public mainnet, because that's what we told them four years ago. This is the only thing that actually will scale. And we have assisted them not on the tech side, but we have assisted them on the GDPR work in terms of clearing the data that is supposed to be there on a public ledger. So this is something of a solution that uh, right now is... Uh, a very hot topic in Norway. Uh, it might not be global news, but we have had a certain instance uh, in incident uh, among the the government in Norway, where it has been everything down to the prime minister. Uh, whose spouse has been acquiring stocks and shares even though he was strictly prohibited to do so and the prime minister was standing there fronting these projects and this has happened to several of the members of the governments so right now there's an urge and a need to have a shareholder register that is actually updated 24 7 compared to once a year and that's where the perfect fit is to use a blockchain solution so in this kind of matter uh not to go too far down in the details it's rather that you still have call it a centralized element of a database where you can do the updates whatnot so ever but the information for the general public whatever is supposed to be public is out there and this is also something that we can use so-called very nerdy terminology but uh, something called a serial knowledge proof etc on in terms of clear who sees what so just think about it that you have a piece of paper actually and on this piece of paper uh it says lots of information and we just instead of lying all this information out we tear a little piece of the corner of this uh, this piece of paper out so this little piece of paper is what we put onto the blockchain while all the information is there. So if you change the digit there, this little piece of paper doesn't match anymore. And then we can see someone tamper on it. That's sort of the high level illustration of how it works. That means you can still keep your data GDPR compliant while using a blockchain to prove the data that is there and ensure no one has tampered with it. So in this kind of way, it, it's it's not like I'm saying it's easy, go ahead, straightforward. But I think in so matter that there's so many instances where I've also heard that people are throwing out, you know, GDPR will shut the whole thing down. And I personally don't think it will because if it, would have, they would have done it already. And now they meet themselves in a catch-22 where the European Union, et cetera, Norwegian governments, other governments, including central banks, are using tokenized standards, building on the technology, and then they will have to scrap all their initiatives. So I don't think personally that, at least in the EU, they will go in and throw any GDPR um cards out towards it it's it's a long and good discussion we could start around whether or not a, a wallet address a pseudo anonymous wallet address for example is uh, uh uh information covered by GDPR that's that's also very interesting but I I think I will leave it here in 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 terms of that one and just uh by by exemplifying this one with the um the case from the Norwegian government
7: well, you t- the, your SharePoint was really interesting because that, that um, sort of implies some, the existence of a conflict, which I believe, Patrick, you covered in one of your early answers. So I'd be very eager to get your sort of steer on that. Uh,
10: the G- GDPR is basically a hurdle, but as Magnus said, there are, there are technical <laughs> solutions about it. And um, there are actually beautiful technical solutions around it, right? um and transparency is a big part of blockchain um so if we are, if governments agree to use the transparency if they want the transparency and want to use the technology and yeah it, it is pseudo anonymous yeah kind of it's more it's more not anonymous at all but that's a different uh a different discussion if if governments accept these technologies to to solve a problem like that, then I don't see GDPR as a problem. But I think they have to accept it and wake up to it. Otherwise, it is a big hurdle.
7: What do you think, um, Suzanne? Do you think there's a there's an awakening here? Do you think that, that, as a as Patrick says, do you think there is there is a hurdle to uh, to overcome? I do. You
2: know, I I wouldn't. You know. I don't know all of where the solutions lie, or you know where all the hurdles are, but I do think you know it's one of the things that's sort of it. You know, it's got two sides to it. You know, so it's got the potential for this. You know, being blockchain being a part of the solution, as Magnus noted. noted but then there's also hurdles. You know, around. You know, I like, and I don't have the answer to this. So if someone else on the panel does, I'll, I'll I'll ask the question if there's time. But about you know sort of the right to be forgotten under GDPR, I don't know what is that the answer to that question in our in in the context of blockchain. And um, so I, I hate to sort of ask a, you know answer your question with a question, but I'm sort of di- dying to know the answer to that. If someone else you know has an, has an answer there.
5: It's impossible,
2: isn't it, to, like, delete information from a blockchain? The right
5: to be forgotten is going to be very difficult to enforce on any centralized storage medium. And uh, there's also this thing in the GDPR that says that uh, data belonging to a European citizen can't leave the territory, isn't it? And that thing is, like, accessible by everyone across the planet. Complicated. Very complicated.
8: But, but i i also personally think you know that <clears throat> if you look back retrospectively and look into when they started writing sort of the framework around GDPR blockchain wasn't around no one was thinking about this one and hence in the same way call it it's it's a bit outdated before it's even full in practice because right now we don't even know fully how to handle gdpr because right now how all companies are dealing with it is just saying hey we have an access t- key to your data and the dog ate it now we are throwing it away but the data is physically stored at all mountains hall in cloud solutions in frankfurt in romania in texas in god knows where." So the data is technically still there. So if if one smart person goes to some court and say, hey, I want my data deleted, i.e. with a sledgehammer, go in and get these hard drives away. Well, then is when sort of the fun part starts with GDPR in general, per se. So we don't even know how to deal with this one fully in terms of who can access the data in the ordinary world. So if we throw in some layer of blockchain on top of this, of course, there's no government who either have the resources, the tools, or call it the knowledge around to make a full verdict around this area. So I personally believe rather in terms of call it seeing the obstacles here when you see all the funding that also EU hands out of grants, of their innovation part, and, and et cetera, where they want to build or test and try to build solutions around this one. Well, then I think it's rather it's time for the GDPR framework to be updated in itself to match sort of the current world where we live in and, and face this one and call it a GDPR uh, too uh, in, in some matter. So I personally have said, don't in my wireless fantasy see that the EU uh, will shut down any blockchain initiatives or the whole industry based upon... Uh, uh, on 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 gdpr because it's also in breach of you know the three pillars of of mika if we take this one uh, <clears throat> that's to protect uh, consumers and private investors ensure financial stability i.e that bitcoin or anything else is not taking over the euro and the last one is to drive innovation so if they want to do this one they can clearly not come up with with such a thing so that's that's nothing in in my wildest fantasy but another thing that i think should be mentioned just in brief here that we have and spoke fully about is that it's easy to throw out sort of the meek but what what is also um in this one is we have lots of other stuff coming up in the eu like the tfr the transfer of f- uh, funds the ie the travel rule that enters into force in the same time as Mika. we have carved the crypto asset reporting framework which goes into exchange of information cross border among authorities we have the dsa the digital service act also Doing create a safer environment. We have DORA, the Digital Operational Resilient Act also there. We have the Data Act, which has a smart contract kill switch uh, proposal. We have the DAC8, which is for the tra- uh, tax uh, transparency for, for cryptos, etc. We have so many other things surrounding it. So we should also remember that Mika, per se, is just a little piece of the puzzle in the large package of uh, financial investments that, that the EU has come up with. So it. It, it they all have to be in call it in the context in, in in each other and that's where also call it the AI part fits into this one so that's also when you see the larger perspective and not only call it Mika a little one per se itself uh again I I cannot imagine in my wildest fantasy that GDPR should be call it uh, the the show stopper that will come up here not at all
7: interesting um i think we're we're closing up in the session but i it'd be wonderful just to get three words from each of the panelists on the um the importance of regulation for ai in particular so if i may if each one of you just want to chuck in three words each and um just as a nicer uh, close to the session uh, uh,
10: probably i, I just start on this one um i kind of start like i uh, kind of end like i started honestly i don't understand national frameworks for a global fast-growing technology like like ai or 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 blockchain i governments will lose that that battle
7: thank you what, what do you, what about you susan any any closing remarks
2: um it's going to be more than three words but i'll keep it to five or something like that. <laughs> and I think it echoes Patrick. Will we outgrow it before it's complete, you know, with respect to any of these innovative technologies before the regulation is complete?
7: Thank you. What about you, Magnus? Any, uh, any last thoughts?
8: Yeah, I, I, I can actually copy that one in terms of, you know, uh, technology has has always moved faster than regulation. That's down to sort of the nature it is. And to to be fair and honest, you cannot hold any government person responsible for not understanding this one either, because even all, all of us who is in the industry struggling a bit to keep, keep up with the pace. So, so I, I think I will, if you want three words, I will say, you know, that's a mantra that we have at EY that we call Now Next Beyond. Actually, do what is possible now in terms of whatever it is, you know, regardless of that, is being in the central land with apparently two users where we brought in the Norwegian tax authorities as the first one in the world to build an office there next to our because they want to be able to do the next, they want to learn from it so. They can actually build the next not so their competitors or others are doing it but while doing so also imagining beyond and i think that's the most important thing here imagine a world that doesn't exist yet that's where we need to move so right now of course there's lots of hurdles but i think if we stick with what is possible to do now adjust to that one so we build the next that is how we can move the world forward to the beyond
7: what about you, uh-
9: I would say i mean we need to you know modulate um both cautiously and consciously and keep in mind that you know we've got this kind of between law is code and code is law and trying to integrate those and being able to kind of advance within it and code you know while the law is developing as well so being able to apply it as it's, it's as it's developing is um incredibly important with these types of technologies and and being wary of, of reaching singularity, right, um, before <laughs> before we advance with
11: it. So
7: those are my thoughts. Uh, without the risk of being a roll call, it's uh, you're up next, Enrique. Yes, thank you.
11: Well, uh, it may sound a little bit naive, but I would like to expand on what Jeff was was uh, saying. She mentioned uh, conscious, and I think this is uh, about consciousness, right, developing um Uh, consciousness working on the ethical side of this, not uh, waiting for regulation to tell us what is right and what is wrong. I think that most of us uh, know what is right and what is wrong. So um, in a way, my my hope would be um, to help people um, develop or grow um, to to, to the next level of consciousness to understand what um, must be or must not be done, no matter whether there is regulation. And this particularly applies to the big players uh, in in this field, they should, and again, it may sound naive, but self-regulate and uh, kind of uh, dictate what uh, they want to, or they see as the um, right thing to do or the um, wrong thing to do. So I do hope that uh, um, we can um, progress without waiting for regulation uh, when sometimes the regulator is not an expert and. It may be that regulation is missing something. We see this all the time with some of the regulations that we discussed today. So I do hope that um, we will evolve as individuals, or as as, as as humans, right to the next level of uh, of consciousness to understand and actually execute based on our values and our and our principles. And uh, yeah, I know it may sound naive, but uh, I do hope, and uh, I'm working towards
7: it well, doesn't sound naive at all. A very, very complex account um, account of that. And I think ending ending with Diego makes sense on your point of consciousness. So, Diego, any, any final thoughts to close the panel? I think you're on mute. There we go.
5: Oh, not um, anymore. Not, not anymore, Michael. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot, right? But it comes down to... Big companies don't have the time or the consideration, and it's not out of malice. It's just it's just time, you know. Like a, like the bigger like the bigger your machine, the harder it is to navigate it, right? To cherry pick everyone's data and uh, and understand how it plays a role in the economy, and some people, consumers, companies, whatever. They have no culture in how to manage their, their own data, and understanding exactly how it's going to travel through the network, where how it's going to be stored, and how it's being handled by the people you know taking custody of that data for marketing for whatever purposes the twenty-something disclaimer says that it's going to be used, right? And that's where we need to make sure that uh, next generation AIs, you know, AGI, general intelligence understands both sides and is able to curate the data intake how it absorbs data how it reads it and how it uses it towards decision making that way when someone wants to exercise their right to be forgotten well there's not going to be that much of a problem right because the ai will understand exactly where the data is stored under what parameters why it can be Uh, or not be accessed why is it asking to be deleted and uh, doing it and taking the time to do it you know with patience and ethically instead of having to like wait for some person to you know answer a chat box or an email a month later right when it's too late to delete your data Uh, you know being able to do it instantly at the appropriate time and uh, that's gonna save us a lot of headaches and it's gonna save us a lot of a lot of angry people or sad people because their data wasn't deleted um, fast enough or because it was shared without their consent, which is also kind of the same thing. Uh, so we need AGI now, not not in hundred years. Yeah, that's.
7: that's I thought big, you might I say do. that. I thought... I thought you might say that, Diego. But um, I think um, we a uh, lot of points that we've touched on probably um, warrant a few more sessions. But I just want to take the uh, time out to think, our, um, you know, distinguished uh, panelists. So thank you all very much for your time. Uh, love to uh, love to do this again, and um, really appreciate it. And of course to our very generous hosts. Um, uh, Jackie and Matt so thank you everyone for the panel um, it's been a pleasure and hope you have a lovely evening day morning where or afternoon wherever you are
1: Michael I speak for all of us just saying thank you for hosting and you know including everyone in this in this really interesting dialogue and uh, one thing that I wanted to say that I find quite interesting is the focus on privacy privacy handles some of these some of these bigger questions and almost supersedes some of these um, some of these regulations of course that's just Fun and theoretical but uh it's interesting uh to hear about uh zk um you know proofs and strategies that can be used to protect all of us in the future and i love the optimism uh, about the general ai and it's important to stay optimistic so That's my my closing remarks. I know we have to go. Jackie, do you want to say I
0: I do want to thank everyone for being on. And I know that we could have talked for hours the next. I want to make sure that everyone knows um, what's happening up next. The next panel is all about social good and how blockchain is being used to integrate social good and the activities around the world that you might not know about. So definitely stay on for the next panel. We have another panel right after that. But our first panel, phenomenal conversation. We're gonna exit you out of the live room right now and bring our next uh, panel in. Thank you so much. And for everyone who's listening, stay on. We have another great panel and we will see everyone soon. All right, everyone, thank you. And we will talk privately. (laughs) Thank
8: you.
1: Thank you.
12: Thanks
1: everyone.
0: Well, everyone who's watching this live broadcast, stay tuned. We have six wonderful new panelists coming on for the blockchain and social good panel. Give us one second while we move everyone into the live room.
1: Now is a great time to uh, get some water, stretch your legs. There's I mean, that was amazing. We've got two more, probably very timely, uh, very informative chats coming up. It's also a good moment to do some housekeeping. Nothing on this broadcast is related in any way to legal advice or financial advice of any kind. We are discussing a variety of subjects. We're discussing a variety of policies and uh, broad terms related to regulation and technology. And as always, take this as an opportunity to do your own research and to learn as much as you can about um, what's facing us in terms of privacy Uh, in terms of the legal uh, landscape for operating your business, or in terms of your own, you know, goals as it relates to things like blockchain, uh, AI entrepreneurship, and digital assets. So we probably will do that again uh, in between the next panel. But for now, hopefully everyone's joining up. And um, Jackie, why don't you give us a little little teaser here?
0: Yeah, so I'm going to give you a rundown as um, we have our, our panelists kind of enter the room. We have Carmen Crypto. She is the head of business development of ClearChain X, and she's also very knowledgeable about DEXs. We have Rachel Brisden, who is actually the business development and partnership um, individual at Opolis, and she also has her own talk show called Crypto Sapiens Podcast. And we have Carrie Langlis, who is the chief strategy officer for TerraWolf, which is a Bitcoin mining company with a zero carbon focus. And they're doing some phenomenal things. Larry Cameron has 20 years of experience in the technology, cryptocurrency, investigative area. He's um, very prestigious in terms of doing <clears throat> high level trainings. We have Tatiana Baskina, who's the CEO and founder of Minticode, which is a decentralized IP marketplace that revolutionizes how software creators manage, secure and monetize their intellectual property assets. We have Above Average Joe, who's with Bankless DAO, and he has been guided by principles of permissionless censorship, resistance, and credibly neutral technology. And James Gray, who is with um, Power Corp, and he's the co-founder and global business development rep. So everyone should be joining us shortly in this room, and we will then kick off the conversation about how do we do social good within the blockchain.
1: All right, fantastic. Just hang in there with us while we get everything queued up. We've got some amazing technicians behind the scenes here, uh, pulling together all these amazing, these amazing minds across uh, literally across the world. So, uh, in fact, let's take this time to say a big thank you to American Crypto Academy. Some uh, very talented people there, including Ivan and Jahan, who are helping make this uh, possible. Ryan as well, Evan, Zach, uh, a lot of people that really helping behind the scenes here we go
0: everyone's popping in now hello everybody hi
1: hello hello did y'all hear that first panel did we all able to tune in for some of that
0: yeah cool This is wonderful. I see everyone who's here. This is phenomenal. We have an awesome panel. So I've already done everyone's introductions in a very brief way. Uh, I do want to mention to everyone who's listening, there will be a free ebook that will be available with everyone's background information and ways to contact everyone. But today we have our moderator, Carmen Crypto, and I'm going to hand it over to her because there are some very interesting projects that we're gonna be talking about from Bitcoin mining to other social good projects.
13: And I'm gonna let you lead the way, Carmen, go ahead. Thank you, Jackie, and thank you, Matt. Look at this panel. I am beyond excited and honored to be here as your moderator, delving into the immense potential of blockchain for global humanitarian causes. This technology has the power to revolutionize how we address pressing issues worldwide. Together today, we're going to explore groundbreaking solutions and forge a path towards positive change. So get ready for an enlightening discussion that could shape the future of compassion and giving. Let's get to it. First, we're gonna kick it off with Chief Strategy Officer of Wolf Carrie. Carrie, welcome.
12: Thank you, thank you, Carmen. I'm happy to be here and thank you to Jackie
13: and Matt for getting this organized. Thank you, Carrie. Here's my question. How does Bitcoin mining benefit the communities in which it operates? And overall, how does this trickle out nationally or globally? sure um
12: so as a bitcoin mining company i think we play two critical roles one uh, we enable the bitcoin network right without the validation provided by bitcoin mining the bitcoin network and the blockchain wouldn't exist and the second element of our business and really our core strategy is is supporting and being a tool for the decarbonization of the grid Um, our background and our management team's background is in energy and energy infrastructure and the largest um, component and cost of, of mining a Bitcoin is the power. And so, um, you know, these are large facilities that can that can turn on and off in a matter of minutes, if not seconds. And you couple that with this increasing amount of renewable resources that are intermittent by nature. And you need something to sort of balance that out. So our facilities uh, can really help the, the local grid and enabling that um, balance, if you will, of the resources, the the supply and the demand. Um, if you think about where we're located and and Terra Wolf has two facilities, one located in upstate New York and the other one in central Pennsylvania, there are many benefits that are realized by the communities in which we operate. You know, job creation, uh, is number one. You know, we in New York, in the case of our facility in New York are located on a site that was the last operating coal plant in the state. Um, It's in a very expansive site, 1,800 acres. It was retired in 2020, but there's a tremendous amount of really valuable infrastructure inherent in that site. And so what we've been able to do is locate a facility that absorbs uh, all of the abundant renewable resources that are located upstate that often go wasted and unused because all of the demand is downstate in New York City. Um, You know, in the retirement of that coal facility, you had generational employees that worked for decades and that was the industry in that area all the way upstate on lake ontario and when the facility retired the the power plant retired there was a tremendous impact to the local community in terms of jobs and and what we've been able to do by bringing our bitcoin mining facility to that location is, is we've actually retrained many dozens of the original engineers and operators of that coal plant are now operating our Bitcoin mining facility. And we've now created a new industry, right? The most cutting edge industry you can imagine uh, for generations to come. So job creation is a big impact. That's obviously local. Uh, The balancing of the grid is a tremendous tool, a valuable tool that's both locally and nationally. And then, you know, if you think about it, and I'll sort of summarize it in this way, um, I'm not sure how many of our participants are, are familiar with power, but, the, you know, power is a local commodity. Uh, it can't travel very far. And it's at the point today while there, you know, while technology is improving, there's no economic way to store it. So you really need to use it when it's generated. And so what Bitcoin mining has been able to do is take that local commodity Ensure it's not wasted and convert it into a global commodity that's a store of value that can reach all corners of the globe. And so that obviously has limit, you know, unlimited com- benefits to communities and is enabling to, for social good in and, and just countless, countless ways. And so that's how we think about our role as Bitcoin miners and the overall social good of, of Bitcoin and, and the blockchain.
13: I love that, Carrie, and thank you so much for sharing that story. When it comes to an impact for a community, you've helped a, a dying community recover with something mm-hmm. that's brand new, and so thank you for that. Uh, next, I'd like to go to Above Average Joe. So you're from Bankless Dow. First off, we have to understand what does DAO mean, and can you provide some instances of blockchain-based projects that have positively impacted financial inclusion and access to banking services for underserved populations?
14: I absolutely can. And it is a pleasure to be here on this panel. Thank you for having me. Um, So DAOs, Decentralized Autonomous Organizations, they are a coordination mechanism in a Web3 environment that can be either protocol focused or social focused generally. And In the case of Bankless, we are more of a socially focused DAO. And as such, we are actually one of the prime examples of one of these areas where blockchain projects and products are inclusive. Um, I would like to draw a highlight to one of our sub DAOs, Bankless Africa, to really drill home some of that use. And in Bankless Africa, we see an engagement of the community that is underserved there in ways that you may not expect because banking has its own frictions but weak currencies are another and in an ecosystem where adoption is rapid by a local populace and everyone begins using a digital currency natively there becomes a lessened need To translate into that local currency unless they have their daily living expenses to take care of, and that means that cryptocurrency by its very nature of being cross borders and non-centrally issued currencies allows for a reunification of the economies of Africa. It allows people in like Ghana and Nigeria to trade funds between one another seamlessly and with less time friction than trying to send a wire transfer, which for these communities is transformational in their ability to participate in an economy um and beyond that things like bankless dow where the social impact is the focus we find that pouring into the skills of the people that are present are one of the main things that we drive value to and that means that when somebody from these communities joins into our digital ecosystem we upskill them and then give them open doors to become positive value earners which in the case of one of our core contributors in bankless africa the local dependency rate on the working population is over 78 percent so getting one extra person from that dependency rate into the earning side really makes a big difference in the equation on the economic potential of their local environment and By leveraging all of that latent untapped human capital, we are seeing massive goods being improved inside of these smaller ecosystems. And surprisingly enough, the behavior of many of these users on chain and users like myself with much larger portfolios are very similar in that we are living in crypto native lifestyles and we use a lot of the same tools like ave and we on and off ramp through our centralized exchanges when necessary but most of our assets are kept inside of the base chains and collateralized and borrowed against for our living expenses and We see airdrop hunting and the adventures that go with being a digital uh, nomad or uh, pioneer, as it were. And that is something that cannot be underrepresented. Um, True to the name in Bankless DAO, we find that banking for the underserved is obsolete. There is no need for a bank anymore. We have gone bankless.
13: I love that. I mean, you have quite a tall order with the 78% data point, but I believe in the velocity of the blockchain and what can come from that. So, congratulations to you and your team for that impact. Um, Larry, you know, I want to turn to you. Um, Cryptographic solutions can be implemented in ways that improve accountability in both philanthropic and public sector initiatives. What do you know about this area? You're a red hat, so let's get into <laughs> it.
15: <laughs> yes, I mean, uh, you know, cryptographic solutions like blockchain or distributed ledger technology, uh, it's more transparency. Uh, it's also a tamper-resistant record of the transactions. I mean, uh, blockchain is immutable. Uh, smart contracts. I mean, they can automatically enforce different terms and conditions, so you can make sure that those funds are used as intended. Uh, digital signatures are also a great way to verify the un- uh, authenticity and integrity of the transactions. So I used to use uh, digital signatures for email encryption. So now they're used for transactions. Uh, they can be used for uh, messages or documents, etc. In uh, different types of homomorphic encryption, it can allow different computations to be performed on that encrypted data without really revealing that underlying information. So you want to keep things like zero-knowledge proofs, which you can prove another party uh, that they have specific information re- without revealing that information itself, that makes sense. So it's uh, I use zero-knowledge proofs when trying to uh, obtain hits on KYC data without having to reveal that KYC data to me. And it gave me an either one or a zero, uh, which that allows me to actually investigate and prioritize certain transactions that we know we have the identity information for and that law enforcement can just look these up in a system. We've seen it used a lot for donations and charity. So they can track how their contrib- contributions are used. So that improves the accountability. Uh, you know, I, I personally love cryptography. Uh, it secures our day-to-day communications and interactions with websites. But uh, it being used for financial transactions are much, much more, uh, much more better.
13: I'm so glad you explained the zero proof. Uh, knowledge. And, you know, this is one of those concepts where I go, are Trustless Next Networks the solution to build trust, you know, amongst humans. Um, So thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I'd like to move to Tatiana, who's the CEO of Minty Code, also at DAO. And Tatiana, you know, NFTs are not just pictures, but, and and the, the tokens that we use symbolize something How are companies utilizing blockchain technology to enable artists and creators and content providers their ability to receive uh, fair compensation?
16: Yes, thank you for your question. I think I would like to start with um, uh, the definition of the problem and the problem here is um, that copyright law and intellectual property law does not work in digital um, world where everyone can copy Everyone else work and distributed in millions of copies. So this is one of the biggest problems of uh, creators uh, who are creating something to become. <coughs> they have to they have to publish uh, their art or creation. Mm-hmm. But once it's um, published, anyone can copy it. Um, and uh, what is interesting with blockchain technology? Um, there are two main properties of blockchain technology that is. Uh, that are important for copyright law. First of all, it's immutability of transactions, so it's uh, records are immutable. And secondly, it's transparency. So right now, there are two use cases for um, digital artists, creators. Um, first of all, it's about um, um, digital ownership. Um, blockchain technology redesigned the definition of ownership. Uh, With um, blockchain technology, we can stamp authorship, uh, especially for digital art or any content, digital content, any digital creation, um, and track who is using it or who owns it. And uh, it does not matter how many copies of uh, um, this digital art you have, what matters is, are you a legitimate owner of this art? And we can verify it uh, by looking at the transaction history um, and the second use case for, um, uh, for creators um, who are using blockchain technology is about, um, is about removing intermediaries uh, because before, um, before they had to find the platform to publish their work and uh, these platforms are primarily um, centralized platforms and there was no way how they could easily uh, interact with uh, their community. Um, so what um, what um, uh, blockchain technology allow them is uh, to to offer some sort of digital di- digital collectibles, um, offer unique experiences uh, to to their uh, uh, fans and users. Uh, that they could uh, enjoy uh, not only the art, but also being, I would say, having exclusive access to either community or, um, I would say, special editions of that art. And what is interesting about um, digital uh, world and artists is that um, what we are trying to solve at MintyCode is uh, mostly about uh, software creators. Uh, we believe that... Uh, um, software engineers. They are also creators. And uh, what was interesting about software engineers is that they they decided that collaboration is really important. Um, and they decided that everything will be free and shared with everyone. Everyone can copy a source code, but then the problem of author attribution is still not solved. Uh, so we, we don't know the names of uh, creators of technologies, right? Because we know names of companies that monetize uh, their work, but we don't know the names of real creators who created, who are, who are those engineers who created this um, technology that we're using now. And so that's what we're trying to solve at MintyCode. So we help uh, open source creators, software engineers to monetize uh, their work uh, through um non-fungible tokens and uh, our blockchain technology.
13: I love that. We're entering into a new era where everyone gets can have an opportunity to get the credit for the work that they have created. And I love that. Um, Rachel, welcome to the show from Opolis. <laughs> Rachel, how can blockchain support financial or social inclusion, particularly in underserved communities?
17: So I love this question. I think that's a really great uh, great question. I just want to start by thanking you both, Jackie and Carmen, uh, for doing phenomenal work organizing this. And thank you to Matt uh, and to all the speakers today. Um, so yeah, great question. How can blockchain support financial or social inclusion? Um, so I wrote a couple notes on this. I think number one is promoting a more equitable financial future for all. So kind of reducing the barrier and creating a global borderless movement, right? Um, I think this will really help to uplift individuals and help to improve our overall financial infrastructure on a global scale and also give people ownership. So this is a big part of why I'm passionate about DAOs and I have the pleasure of working with Above Average Joe at Bankless DAO as well. Um, So that's really a big part of our ethos there, giving people ownership of their assets giving people ownership of their time. And at Opolis, my focus is helping people have ownership of their employment. Um, So that's kind of one of the barriers we're seeing in the Web3 industry, right? People getting paid in crypto. How do you ensure they're compliant with taxes? You know, we still live in the modern world. So at least in the United States, there's some barriers, right, to earning in crypto and working in the industry. So at Opolis, my work has really helped, uh, really focused on helping individuals who want to work in the industry to have everything that they would have, you know, let's say at a traditional corporate um, company job, right? While doing the work that they love. So we really cater to the digital nomads, the independent workers, and we are seeing a rise in freelance workers and people who want to work independently. And uh, Carmen, to answer your question about how this serves, like. Marginalized groups and underserved communities. I think that really kind of widens uh, the scope of this movement and gives people more of an opportunity to get involved in a borderless way. Um, At Bankless DAO, we see people coming together from all over the world to contribute on this DAO, and it's a really beautiful thing uh, to see people having opportunities that might have otherwise not. So, yeah,
13: yeah, I love that. You know, in some ways, we want the world to transform into Web three and blockchain. But in other ways, Web3 has to transform and get a little bit more structured. And so thank you guys for doing that for our employees that work day and night around the clock as the charts never close, guys. Absolutely.
17: (laughs) And, And this is also, this whole thing is tying back into global policy and regulation, which is a really vital topic right now. And kind of the ethos of Opolis, right? And what we're trying to do with developing this global public utility and this employment framework is take the target off of our backs, right? Show that we can play the game just enough for them to not come after our industry and make it really difficult for us to provide people with a more equitable future.
13: I love that. We need better optics all day, every day. Um, Now, James, co-founder of Power Corp, you know, we have created such a wide community. We we are developers, they're investors, they're enthusiasts for our technology. But what can we do and and what roles can individuals like this um, play in encouraging blockchain technology to support social good?
18: Yeah, I think first and foremost, I think anybody currently involved in blockchain or Web3 technology will agree when I say, you know, do your research. Uh, you know, th- those that have the means, investors and developers that have the means to amplify and kind of accelerate these programs, you know, do your research. Find the ones that have a social impact, that have some, that are doing some good in the area, uh, in the space, and those are going to be the projects that succeed ultimately. Um, that's what we want you know, as, a, as a society, as humanity. We want to, to move forward with the good things and put down the bad. Uh, so I think first and foremost, do your research. Uh, blockchain technology by its design is a trustless, higher encrypted system um, that allows for transparency in all transactions. Um, and as long as anyone can see what's going on behind the scenes, uh, that, that open, trustless, transparent kind of ecosystem is going to ensure less fraud, uh, less problems, more inclusion, and that's going to create a greater social impact.
13: Uh,
18: At Power Meta, we use the, you know, I'm sorry, go ahead.
13: You're good, keep going.
18: uh, (laughs) Sorry, at Power Meta, uh, we we use the the Filecoin blockchain uh, to store data for enterprises, government entities, educational entities. Um, And this ensures that that data that we are creating and have been creating throughout history is going to be there for the next generation. Cloud services and other types of, of single-server data point storage point systems uh, are have critical failures, um, and so if they do have those critical failures, that data is lost. You know what are we losing in the process? Uh, not just the data, we're also losing the the research, we're really losing losing the education, and we're losing all the steps that people took before us. Um, oftentimes, the next step in, in innovation and evolution in any kind of society or any kind of project or endeavor. Um, was on the shoulders of the ones before us. Uh, And if we don't have those data points and we don't have that record of humanity uh, to do that with, uh, we're doing ourselves a disservice and it's going to slow down our evolution and our innovation of technology. Um, A couple of use cases that Filecoin is currently, uh, that Filecoin has done in the past, uh, they they worked with the Shoah Foundation that stored uh, 55,000 different users' accounts and uh, videos and pictures of the Holocaust. Uh, and that's something that is now stored on the blockchain immutable forever um, that can will be there for forever so that anyone can access this information. Um, anyone can see this, find these records and and know that this is true accounts of what happened in our past. So another one is the uh, there's an Australian uh, Medical Institute that recently stored 137 PIBs of data that they've acquired through all of their different research and technology usage in the field of, of uh, cardiac. These things are gonna be what helps propel the next generation and the next project and the next thing being built. And it doesn't have to be in only first world countries. Um, all of these advances and all of these different you know, programs that we've heard about in these projects we've already heard about from our speaker panels are all geared towards social good and social impact. Helping third world, second world countries that don't have the ability to do this uh, currently. You know, helping them get caught up to the more of the first world countries through these exchanges and through these programs and processes that are available to us now because of blockchain and web3 technology that wasn't possible before we're not able to have different kind of refugee programs and different kind of identification programs and different kind of donation programs that we've been talking about uh, cross-border cross-country without all these kinds of hiccups and red tape and paperwork and all the things that we have to go through now in a web2 kind of society These new technologies, blockchain and web three, are gonna help us advance these causes and get moving forward on a lot of these projects faster than we normally would be able to, or even create new avenues for these things to succeed because that technology wasn't available before. So now we're able to create not only new ecosystems, new technologies, but we're also able to create new programs and new things that can aid those that need the aid the most that what we weren't able to do before with previous technologies.
13: I love that. Leave it to James to remind everyone, D-Y-O-R, do your own research. And he said it way better than I, but I think it every day, the history is being rewritten on the blockchain. Um, So, okay. Carrie, I know you got to go, but I've got to ask you one more question. So I'm going to leave it open for you. How is Bitcoin mining supporting the energy transition? We're talking about the decarbonization of the grid. There's so many assumptions out there.
12: Yep, sure. And, you know, listen, this industry has come a long way from where it started, but we are still um, battling some of the preconceived notions or misconceptions around, you know, Bitcoin mining, its energy usage um you know whether it's appropriate even to use energy for bitcoin mining and i think um you sort of need to and and this goes to james's point about education is learning about how bitcoin facilities operate um how they're incentivized and the function and role they can play in the sort of broader environmental ecosystem and so At its purest form, you know, Bitcoin mining, you're incentivized. So we're a public company. And and what we try to do is create the most uh, amount of value uh, for our shareholders. And all we are effectively doing is converting. We're converting power to Bitcoin. And the way that we provide or increase our profit is by doing that, producing a Bitcoin at the lowest marginal cost possible. So we are naturally incentivized to find the lowest cost power, which happens to be renewable. And, you know, the great thing about Bitcoin is it doesn't care where it is and it doesn't care what time of day it is. And so you can cite these locations and places where you have abundant renewable resources, like all the way upstate New York, where there's not a lot of demand, or central Pennsylvania, where you either need to go east or west to get to demand pockets. You can cite these facilities and places that can take advantage of that supply, um, convert it to bitcoin right other than having it effectively evaporate or go into the ground and, and not be used and um and and then by doing so you're you're also a load source so you're using the grid all those fixed costs to sort of run the electric grid are being amortized over a larger base so you're incentivizing new investment um in renewable resources so The reality is is that bitcoin mining is one of the most um sustainable uh, industries in terms of its energy usage it is by definition um incentivized to find the lowest cost power which is renewable resources and again it's also providing that tool back to the grid such that we can actually incentivize more and more solar farms wind farms renewable resources actually be built and put on the grid so you know, a lot of that is, is again, not a lot of people understand, you know, the way that the grid was built energy supply used to follow demand. So you'd have these thermal power plants, gas plants, coal plants built outside of major cities. That's not the way anymore. And so now we need to go to places and take advantage of where the sun is shining and where the wind is blowing, no matter where it is and make that uh, a use case. So that's in a nutshell, I think how, You know, Bitcoin mining is such a critical component because, again, I haven't found a more flexible load that can turn off or turn on in a matter of minutes, any time of the day, whenever it's needed.
13: I love that. Thank you so much for your time today. I I know that you got
12: to go. And thank you, everyone.
13: Now, Average Joe, let's go to you. You're a part of a community that's providing so much impact to underserved communities, but what's your best advice for other communities that can also take a step into becoming a contributor to social good initiatives?
14: Get involved with public goods. There are many different avenues like Gitcoin grants or Giveth or gosh, I can't even remember some of the other platforms. There are many, but my biggest uh fan is towards gitcoin and i do recommend getting involved over there and i recommend a three-part approach for those in the blockchain industry to engage in this type of thing and i'm a big fan of alliteration so i recommend fueling it fanning it and firing it up you fuel it with your money You give them what they need in order to get that quadratic funding and show where that impact needs to be delivered. You fan it with your marketing efforts and let the rest of the world know there's something cool happening here because they're not going to get excited if you don't tell them about it. And then fire it up. Get involved. Get your hands dirty. And do something with one of those projects. Start creating that impact yourself. Because at the end of the day, it's us that builds it. And when you get your hands dirty, you get experiences and value that cannot be bought.
13: I love that. I heard take action and do it now. I love it. Larry, so from you know, the background that you have, can you share with us some, some insight as to what are some of the capabilities of blockchain forensics today that can help us fight malicious entities?
15: Uh, so blockchain forensics, uh, really it relies on attribution. So if there's could be a ransomware attack, it could be a theft. It could be a hack. It could be, you know, numerous things, dark web, uh, child abuse, uh, tons of different attributions, uh, even a cryptocurrency exchange. So once we are able to attribute those to certain entities, then we're able to easily and seamlessly trace them and graph them out using blockchain forensics now there's probably over a dozen different providers that i use i won't mention any but uh you know they're all great i use them you know pretty much every day Uh, but you know when you're able to graph out these transactions see them visually see when they're sending to a cryptocurrency exchange uh, we're even able to use some different products that allow us to trace through coin joins uh you know swapping So when they swap one cryptocurrency to another, uh, different decentralized, you can trace that sometimes you can trace through those mixers, washers, tumblers, Uh, doesn't matter if they're transacting on the dark web, you're able to trace Bitcoin and Ethereum and all those different uh, types of cryptocurrency. (coughs) Excuse me. So, you know, this is what we need in order to investigate uh, once we... Are able to trace that. We're able to submit that data to law enforcement. Then law enforcement then subpoenas the exchange or warrant or production order, uh, and then they're able to kind of get the KYC data. And uh, I love that. yeah, it's uh, it's easier than when you're doing it with a, a bank.
13: Absolutely. I mean, anybody who's been in blockchain for even just three months understands, hey, go to the records, go to the transaction hash, and you got to find somebody to translate it if you don't know it well enough yourself. So thank you, Larry, for sharing that. As we do good in this world, we also got to minimize the bad that's happening. So if they're using a blockchain, we're coming after you. Thank you.
2: Um, So
13: Tatiana, let me go to you. Um, You know, We think naturally that everybody's going to want to contribute and take part in doing social good. But is there potentially hurdles or obstacles, whether it be ethical or technical, that might hinder us from taking that action?
16: Yeah, so this is a great uh, question. I think um, the main problem and challenge here is about storage, right? Uh, so it was already mentioned but decentralized storage is um, really important we're living in a very scary world where our data is controlled by a limited group of companies Um, and uh, what is interesting uh, is that these companies uh, they define the policies they define rules and law for us how our data will be used So at any point of time, they can remove our content if they believe that uh, it does not comply with their policies. But we as users or creators, we did not have the right to vote on these policies. So I think at this stage, what is important, it's important to define the frameworks, how we share our content and how we have the right to decide uh, which content is good and which content is bad. Do we vote all together to decide what are the rules for the content should be I think this uh, th- this is a main challenge with with respect to uh, content creation, uh, sharing the content, collaboration, and deciding um, what should be available and what uh, should not be published. Um, and another challenge is about collaboration. I think what is important is uh, when uh, w- even if it's content or digital art or software, when it's um, Created in collaboration, um, it's important to ensure that we give a fair attribution to each contributor, whether they're whether it was small contribution or big contribution. And there is a challenge: how do we evaluate um, this contribution, and how do we ensure that we um, assign the right uh, number of uh, shares or tokens or any other um, uh, properties to, to to this work?
13: I love that. Tatiana, that's make me. That's going to make me think twice when I got to go grab some information, but I'm logging into someone else's platform that I had nothing to do with. <laughs> that's where everything is being kept nowadays. So this is very exciting for us. Rachel, let's come back to you. When we're talking about the innovation of blockchain technology, is there potential for us to bridge social and economic gaps between marginalized communities?
17: Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I actually wrote some notes and, and my work really pertains to like kind of bridging the gap between web two to web three. So I think this is a really good question to kind of incorporate into that. Um, so I really focus more on the entrepreneurial ownership piece. So I'll, I'll take it back and tell a little story. So when I first got involved, I had a friend that told me about DAOs and they were working on this educational DAO called Bridge Builders DAO. Um, so I started joining. I had no idea about any of the vernacular, the terminology. Um, but guess what? I was opened with open, ar- or I was welcomed with open arms, and they just invited me to keep joining the calls. And I just kept asking questions and kept exposing myself uh, to different conversations with thought leaders and people working in the industry. Um, and that's kind of what has led me to where I'm at today. Just continuing to ask questions um, and really, I, I'm grateful for that low barrier to entry for the industry. Um, Now, for marginalized groups, so I've worked with some organizations, and and most recently, I've worked with an organization called Y3K. Um, We did an innovation summit at uh, the University of Southern California, so we did work at USC. We recently did another one at UCLA, so I really appreciate the work that they're doing, uh, giving marginalized groups a voice to come to these kinds of events and have opportunities they might have otherwise not. Um, so yeah, definitely got to give a big shout out to Y3K and, and a huge thanks to USC and UCLA for seeing potential um, for this industry, right, and, and wanting to educate students and the next generation um, about digital ownership. So I hope that answered the question. Okay.
13: <laughs> it sure did. And you know, I love it. I love it when we get great examples of what's working in our industry. And I noticed that your name here on the screen is also your Twitter. So if you can maybe pin a tweet or something, giving us some links so we can check it out. Cause you know, Jane said, D-Y-O-R. <laughs> Do yes. your own research. <laughs>
17: um, so I actually shared something and this might be a good resource for anyone listening. If you want to learn more about DAOs, I actually wrote a Medium article called Benefit of the DAO. Uh, so this kind of ties into the ownership, bridging the gap and, and lowering the barrier of en- entry to the industry. If you want to educate yourself, this can go over with you uh, just the similar core print- principles of different DAOs, what a DAO is and the common denominators of DAO success. So if you want to go down the DAO rabbit hole, check out that article I shared on my Twitter.
13: Thank you, Rachel. James, you know, this is an important thing as we wrap up this panel blockchain can provide, we've learned through this panel, so much transparency. It can start to build trustless systems, validate, you know, identity in ways that we've never done it before. How can blockchain be applied to create tamper-proof records for human rights documentation, such as land ownership or uh, refugee status?
18: Yeah, I mean, again, the the inherent you know, trustless, transparent, uh, you know, immutable nature of blockchain is, is where the big advantage comes in here, especially when it comes to something um, as that needs to be as secure as identities. Um, you know, if you're a refugee in a, in a country and you're moving place to place, camp to camp, or even cross border into another country, you know, a lot of times those things, those moves, and those kind of interactions happen, you know, on a moment's notice. Um, loss of identity for leaving identity behind most uh, refugees or in a lot of these third world countries don't even have government issued identification to begin with so now we're now able to use this technology that can be accessed from any kind of hardware point that has an internet connection to now have a record of someone's identity to ensure that they are who they say they are and this person is who they say they are and we're able to do that very simply uh, using the blockchain technology Um, this will create that cross-border access and confirmation uh, as well as you've got inherently built in the technology a higher degree of security that's just not available on web 2 platforms Uh, it's common it's very common place for first world countries like us to track births and deaths uh, because that process is already in place Uh, it's not as common um, in third world countries they just don't have those processes in place and implementing that kind of uh, system and kind of identification and tracking of the populace uh, has proven very difficult, uh, as we know. It'll it'll be significantly easier uh, to use the blockchain technology to create these digital identities that don't need to be held onto. It's not not changeable. You don't need to keep it in the safe or keep it in the drawer or remember to grab your wallet on the way out the door. Uh, It can be accessed from any hardware point that has an internet connection on the planet. Um, and when we're talking about Filecoin protocols, uh, uses the IPFS system, which is interplanetary filing system. You could even access the records from another planet uh, in the future when we're doing interstellar travel, uh, which is inevitable uh, at some point in our near future. You, know, you can access any kind of documentation or any kind of data from any other planet in the system uh, because of the way that that technology is set up. Um, so doing so is going to allow us to to create better census of areas in population, uh, which will help us to move the donations and move these aids and these funds and these, this needed support that is so vital in a lot of these areas to the places that need it the most because we have better accurate tracking of the populace and what they need and what they're going through and, and what struggles they're having and come together socially to put the, the work and the good in where it needs to be Um, And less waste. I mean, how many times have we heard about larger kind of donation platforms or different kind of aid operations where 10 or 15 or 20 percent of the donations went to the actual needy um, and the rest was administrative costs or this and that and the other. We can eliminate a lot of that overhead because it is transparent. You can't hide things on a blockchain. There's nowhere to hide them. Uh, It's all transparent. It's all right in your face on an open ledger. Uh, You can't adjust it. You can't change it. You can't fudge the numbers or cook your books, so to speak, uh, because it is all right there. And it's automatic. It's not uh, human created. So we don't have to worry about that human error fudge factor. It's all very transparent on the blockchain. These things can then be created and cataloged and retrieved uh, with 100% accuracy. and those are the things that are going to help us to bring uh, a lot of these things together and get the good where it needs to go a lot more efficiently than we're currently doing
13: amazing i mean just from listening to you i'm like guys jackie matt we have aliens now and filecoin figured (laughs) out interplanetary records before it was official so Uh, i've been talking off
18: planet for months now
13: have you okay (laughs) guys I want to take this moment to thank Jackie thank Matt for facilitating this but more so James it's been a pleasure having you Tatiana thank you so much for your insight Rachel you are a boss and thank you for all that you do Larry you keep everybody in in the code ethers you know upright and above average Joe thank you so much for the all all that you and your community does guys we're wrapping this up what a wonderful conversation it was I can't wait to come back next time for real I mean, these this
0: this conversation about social good is just the tip of the you know the top of the mountain of what's going on and yes larry you protect us you know with what you do behind the scenes but everyone else you know again you're you're definitely role models for what can be and what is happening so um everyone thank you so much for being on for those that are listening to the live stream stay on we have one more awesome panel. And I don't want you to miss this. I know Carmen and Janet, bless you, Larry. Um, so everyone else, uh, we are going to be exiting you from the, the live room. We're going to have a slight little pause so we can move all of our other special guests on. And we definitely want to thank everyone who's been here and thank you so much. So again, everyone stay tuned. We are about to go to our third and last panel and it has been phenomenal. Thank you so much.
17: Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Jackie and Carmen and Matt for having us all today.
1: Special thanks to you, Carmen. You did a great job. Thank you so much.
18: you yep. Very well done. Thank you.
0: All right. We're going to transition now. <laughs> So as we transition, I'm going to uh, do a little bit of what I did before. I'm going to share a little bit of background as I move my screen. So we have our moderator today, Nadja Bester, who is a phenomenal woman executive with Adlanum and it's international, her company. We have Adam Miller, who's with Middow. We have Abdullah Dahari, who um, might be with us, but I know he ha- he's over in the UAE, and so it's very late there, so he might have had to hop off, but we're definitely going to be hearing from him on my talk show. We have Dr. Christopher Smithmeyer, who is a phenomenal author and also um, in charge of the Black Wallet, co-founder of that. We also have Jess Ford, who is the CEO of Arrival, who's one of our sponsors, and we cannot thank them enough because they have facilitated Decentraland. And I know that's going to be a fun uh, theater to be watching our show in. And then we have Simon Smith, who's the co-founder of the Custom Deposit Registry. And uh, we, I believe that Mac MacGyver, actually, um, he's not with us today because he fell ill but he is with the company called McNerd. So, um, you know, again, we have all this um, wonderful talent and intellect here who's gonna be talking about FinTech, supply chain, um, blockchain, and a lot of the intricacies that happen around the world. Because again, when you're doing business in one country, you're not just doing it in one country, you're doing it globally so um matt as we bring other people these other speakers on what comments do you have for what we've just listened to over these past let two- me
1: give a recap for where we are what a night what a night for crypto it's uh fun to note that bitcoin was bitcoin was pumping today uh, you know everyone loves that great day great day for, of green charts and uh we've heard you know even more importantly than that we've heard a lot about how this technology um can be used for things like privacy and uh, some of my favorite things like, you know, individuals' rights and self-sovereignty and equality, certainly some major use cases for all of these things we discussed. And we talked about um, particularly the EU. That was pretty amazing. And then the social good stuff, I think, uh, is definitely a guiding light for everyone. And it's an important uh, way to you know, form conversations that impact uh, people outside of all of ourselves. And then this is going to be amazing because I think we have a focus here, and I hope there's some more panelists coming in here now. Kind of empty in here but uh here we go we got adam in here Hi so everyone. i think uh, if we get a focus here and you know this could be interesting we don't have to talk about you know trading or the price of bitcoin but we might talk a little bit now about commercialization economic impacts of the industry and um those are certainly things that are relevant uh to people that work in crypto but really relevant to everyone uh including uh gdp and countries that want to attack uh, attract great talent And and as well, things like the premier said earlier, uh, you know, creating frameworks uh, for entrepreneurs and people within their community to legally uh, innovate and do so responsibly. Uh, Not not and always uh, without concern, and it's not easy, but uh, definitely people around the world taking the right. Uh, the right stance here. Hopefully we've got more coming. I know some people might be in the green room. They're struggling.
0: I have I have little pings coming in saying they're on their way. But why don't we start? So, um, you know, again, we as we did with the other panelists, there were some delays going on because of just logistics. So we can start with the questions. And um, I know that myself and Matt can also, you know, handle some of these questions. Let's introduce
1: Naja as well. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Nadja, why don't you? I only did a little cursory uh, introduction. You're you're a phenomenal businesswoman on the blockchain, with a talk show, with um, everything, and you know, entrepreneur-wise. Why don't you go ahead and share a little bit more about your background? Because I'm not going to do justice. <laughs>
6: I don't know if it's ever possible for anyone to do justice to anyone else's bio. Um, Yeah, very happy to be here today. Uh, I think that all of the topics that are being discussed are very important, but uh, especially that of the one that we're talking about today. Um, because this is really where my focus comes in is, you know, how blockchain can be navigated in the real world from a business perspective. Um, So I'm the co-founder of AdLuna, which is a Web3 investment ecosystem. So we essentially support uh, early stage founders, connecting them to institutional funding all the way through to uh, the, the retail investment level. Um, so I'm yeah, very passionate about uh, creating solutions that work for regulators, as well as startups, as well as uh, retail investors. Um, yeah, and I think with that, I'm going to then kick off and get us started. Jackie, I don't know if there's any other introductions that you want to do, uh, or shall we just get into the meat of it?
0: Well, um, why don't, Adam, take, take 30 seconds, introduce yourself, and Chris, why don't you take 30 seconds right after that, introduce, and then we're going to go right into, uh, Carmen is back, great, um, and why don't we go into the, the meat of the questions, but go ahead and introduce, because Adam, you have a very interesting background as well.
19: Well, thank you. And uh, I'm Adam Miller from MyDAO and the Just Dow It podcast. If you saw my dog walk in a moment ago, that was Goldie. Um, I am obsessed with DAOs. I just believe there's so much potential in terms of, uh, you know, changing the way we as humanity organizes everything uh, from our families and our chess clubs up to our biggest companies and national and international governments. Um, I write laws that have been passed in the Marshall Islands, which is a sovereign nation in the South Pacific. And what we're doing there is creating the best legal and regulatory environment in the world for DAOs and also for Web3. I'm
0: going to bounce it over to Chris. Uh, you're muted. <laughs> yeah, <There>
2: you
20: <laughs> thanks. Go. Thank you for having me and thank you for telling me that my mic was muted. Um, my name is Dr. Chris Smithmeyer. I'm the CEO of Black Wallet Limited. Um, we are a stablecoin 2.0 ecosystem management company. And um, we've also been putting out a lot of information on the uh, cryptoverse, uh, different books to uh, bring things up to date. And we're really big on trying to bring the level up for everybody, like the whole rising tide thing, because the more cryptos that are out there, the more. Um, laboratories for improvement, there are, and we really feel that that's a big thing.
0: And I know, Nadja, this is your your show with the panel, but Carmen, you were moderator last one. You weren't able to introduce yourself, so why don't you introduce yourself from your variety of
13: background? you know, where do I start? But thank you guys for adding me to this panel. I'm head of business development for Clear Cryptus and Clear Chain X. So we specialize in enterprise solutions for big entities. So we work with 26 airlines, we've worked with government contractors, um, and, and the list just goes on. But I've only been in the blockchain space for about three years. My brain about exploded with all the opportunities that we can create efficiencies, create security within our, our industries and come up with new innovative ways to really live our missions day to day.
6: Yeah, very, very happy to be having these discussions with you guys today, because I think we've come to a point, uh, certainly in many different sectors in the business world, where more and more people are becoming aware of the existence of blockchain and also of the possibilities thereof. And we are seeing a lot more people move into the space, both at a professional level, because... This is what they're working with full time or because it becomes part of their job. And then, of course, also in, their pers- in a personal capacity, because there have been times when you couldn't walk on the street without hearing the word Bitcoin. Of course, now the markets are not reflecting this. So we are not having those experiences as often. Uh, but yeah, very happy to then to just get your dive right in. Um, <clears throat> so I think, Chris, let's start with you. Uh, speaking of Bitcoin, um, you know, Bitcoin, we've seen especially lately, uh, has very much have ha- has very much uh, had a impact in terms of how people lose money and they earn money, and that's kind of the key narrative uh, that a lot of people have around the technology is it's tied to Bitcoin and that Bitcoin is tied to the markets, the financial markets. Uh, But what do you think, what are some of the impacts uh, that Bitcoin can have on businesses beyond just this narrative of, you know, this is a way for people to make money and also to lose money. Is Bitcoin then something that is part of the discussion at all, or should we focus more nuanced uh, a, a type of focus in terms of blockchain technology blockchain technology is where the technology lies uh, what where is the divide uh between these two narratives when it comes to the business world
20: um there's not a major divide here coming in because blockchain and cryptocurrency not just bitcoin but ethereum the altcoins the stable coins that are out there are so important Because they are the value representation for the blockchain. Now, there are many activities on the blockchain that you can do that don't need to be tokenized. But there are also several that need some sort of financial incentive for people to give their processing power over to the blockchain to develop it. And for businesses to adapt to this system, one is... We have computers around the world that are on constantly. That are using up electricity, that are burning through electricity, doing nothing, just sitting in offices, running all night because people don't want to turn their servers off. They don't want to turn off their computers. And as a result, we've got this huge waste here. And businesses need to start using this opportunity to engage with the blockchain. Use this dead computer downtime, use it for staking, use it for um, proof of work or proof of stake or proof of history systems to allow that processing power to improve the blockchain because they're spending that electricity anyway. So if they move forward with this, this is a great opportunity. And the Bitcoin, this is where it wraps back around to Bitcoin or any other um, currency that is paying people for their uh, processing speed you have the ability to bring that in and make it work for you as opposed to just sitting there burning energy.
6: Very interesting perspective, Chris, thank you. Uh, Carmen, you have worked with a number of very large brands uh, on on this technology. And what are your thoughts in terms of what you've been seeing? Where are the minds of corporates uh, if we have, you know kind of the blockchain startup world on the one end of the spectrum and perhaps governments are on the other se- end of, the, of on the other side of the spectrum where do the corporates lie uh, at the moment or at least in your experience
13: yeah you know the overall optics in the media don't look good for us you know there there are some barriers to break down when you get in front of a decision maker um and i think it it also resonates well with retail investors too because you come in under the understanding that there's a chart, that there's currency involved, and that there's profits and gains, and you try to understand that system. Um, And for those of us who walk through that gate, it takes us time to understand that there's foundational technology that can do even more. And so you're right. I sit in front of decision makers and I have to hold their hands and walk them through some of the fundamentals to understand truly what power we have through the technology. What can we honor? What can we commemorate? How can we deliver value? And oftentimes my job is to walk away from the the idea that an NFT launch is the answer, a token is the answer and say, look, we're gonna have a multitude of those kinds of contracts, those smart contracts in order to facilitate your mission. So let me dive into your business. Let me understand how you operate. And right now, the biggest biggest way I get the yes is by telling people as a business owner, you're renting your business. You're using somebody else's cloud service. All of your business tools are centralized with another entity and any failure along that is at the detriment of your business and your clients and your customers. So we, you know, who understand some of the fundamentals to the technology have a a tough road to go down, um, but we're so passionate about what we do that we don't take no for an answer. And so that's how we reach one, teach one, um, and
6: that's how we accomplish adoption. Yeah, that certainly is uh, an attitude that is much needed and also much appreciated in this industry. But I think, you know, kind of just to tie it together what, uh, what you were saying, Common, and what Chris was also saying that a lot of things can be tokenized. Some things should be tokenized, some shouldn't be. So I think it's a very, uh, really just balanced approach to keep on reminding ourselves that it's a technology that's always implementable, but the question is whether it should be implemented or not. Uh, Adam, then bouncing over to you uh, because, of course, we've heard a lot of talk about DAOs and you know, there's been a lot of, I think, more at a philosophical level where people have been really following the thought process and, and, and going down that rabbit hole of imagining what uh, corporations and what society might look like if DAOs truly were to be implemented at a practical level. Uh, so in terms of where we are in real world adoption, um, how are countries around the world uh, incorporating laws uh, to really ensure that DAOs also become part of the legal framework? I know your work with the Marshall Islands sounds very pioneering and very innovative, but how far behind or close uh, to where you guys are uh, with this project are other countries?
19: Sure, thank you. So, um, you know. What makes DAOs different from traditional organizations from a technical perspective is that they tend to track their membership using a token rather than in written documents. They tend to do their voting, their governance on-chain instead of in meetings and written documents. And then they can also hold their money on-chain instead of holding their money uh, in a bank account. And where there's some friction between that and the way most laws around the world were written is that most corporate law requires you to keep the names and addresses of all your members just so you can keep track of them. And until recently, there was no reason to question whether or not that made sense. But now if you want to be a DAO, which means in the sense that holding a token can represent ownership or membership in that organization, you can't register as a legal entity almost anywhere in the world. Same goes for the requirement in most jurisdictions to have a board or officers or trustees or directors. Most DAOs do not have a board. And so if you go create a foundation or a corporation somewhere, you're going to have to have a board, either independent directors or other directors, which is just not consistent with what most DAOs want. So there are other issues too. uh, And there's a lot of kind of nuance to how the legal systems treat organizations. Um, But DAOs need legal entities. And the reason for that is, is that legal entities are what protect people from unlimited liability associated with their activity with a group of people. So without a legal entity, and we've seen this with cases, including DAO and BZX, governments are coming after DAOs and saying, well, because you didn't incorporate in any way, we're going to hold you, the members of the DAO, the token holders, the voters, personally responsible for the actions of the organization. Um, You could lose your house, right? I mean, this is massive. There's also tax implications of being part of an organization that does not have a legal entity and has not elected a particular tax treatment. And it's the same thing. The individual members can be held liable for the taxes that would otherwise be put on the organization if it had a legal entity and and took certain other actions. Um, Finally, even as simple as uh, how does the DAO own its own name, its own brand, its own trademark? Right, Unless you have a legal entity, an organization effectively cannot own intellectual property. And same goes if you want to own fiat money or equity in a company, you have to have a legal entity. So what we've done in the Marshall Islands is we've changed the LLC law. We've kind of forked it to use blockchain native language. We have forked it into a DAO LLC, which has slightly different treatment that removes some of the other requirements and introduces some new compliance requirements such as on-chain analytics to make sure these DAOs are not being used for untoward purposes, while still allowing everyone to be anonymous and not having managers or directors, not having to have paper records, et cetera. Where the rest of the world is, actually some states in the United States are trying to do the same thing. Actually a number of states have passed DAO-specific legislation in the United States. The only problem is that you have the risk of the US federal government uh potentially with its existing regulators and laws and the potential for future crypto unfriendly laws and regulations that are scaring people away from registering in the United States anywhere, even if there's a good DAO law. Um, And then in the rest of the world, I'm not aware of a single country that has passed a DAO-specific legislation. A lot of countries have talked about it and are talking about it. Some countries have said, yeah, bring your DAOs here and form foundations. But to my knowledge, no one else has yet uh, made it to the point that we're at in the Marshall Islands, which is actually passing a series of laws that specifically create an environment for DAOs and web three in general, right? Even if you don't consider yourself a DAO, you might not wanna have a board if you're working in web three, or you might wanna have some anonymity. Um, so we're looking forward to other countries catching up and doing the same thing. And we wanna help them actually, because I think you know, innovation around the world is gonna drive progress everywhere. Uh, but that's, what's unique about what we've done in the Marshall Islands.
1: Yeah.
6: I mean, huge congratulations. That is definitely extremely pioneering. Uh, and from a, from a government perspective, also very innovative. Uh, so yeah, huge congratulations. So maybe just a very short follow-up question, um, It sounds like there might not be a short-term future for DAOs from a legal perspective. Uh, Are you seeing at least a medium or long-term perspective that's a little bit more global than what we are seeing right now?
19: You know, on one hand, I would say it doesn't matter as much as it used to that you have legal entities for DAOs all over the world because most DAOs are global. Now, there's nothing wrong with, I mean, Austin, Texas, DAO is an amazing DAO, Miami Community Radio DAO, and they're going to form legal entities in the United States. There's no reason not to. Um, So aside from, I'd say, a desire to have some competition and have some alternatives doing slightly different things with different regulatory frameworks, we don't necessarily need every country in the world to pass DAO-specific legislation in order for people in their country to found and take part in a DAO right? As long as that DAO truly is global in nature, which admittedly, now that I think about it, a lot of DAOs won't be. And so if you're an Ital- a group of Italians just doing stuff in Italy, you probably do need the Italian government to pass some new legislation to allow you to get the legal treatment you really want. But if you're a global Web3 organization, you can pick and choose Cayman Islands, Panama, Switzerland, Marshall Islands, Wyoming, whatever you want. And so in that regard, maybe it doesn't matter if there's DAO legal entities all over the world.
6: Simon, so uh, zooming out a little bit on that question, um, if we look at all of the different countries around the world, and they've all had very different kind of responses uh, when, it com- when it comes to regulation, some have gone down very ha- heavy handed, others have you know, taken the approach of having a kind of sandbox mindset where please come experiment and you know, we'll kind of work with you to uh, explore whether this is something that can go into uh, the government framework. Um, But uh, are there any particular countries you are seeing at the moment, especially, uh, that really seem to have a handle on how they handle regulation and how they kind of balance this uh, very fine line between innovation and the regulation?
4: Yeah, I mean, regulation is an interesting one, particularly in the the events of the last sort of 18 months where we've seen um, FTX go down and a number of other um, crypto businesses um, have, have gone down and, and really cost investors a lot of money. So I think people are trying to find at the moment ways of protecting investors against the risk of that kind of um, really kind of a bad management of crypto organizations. Um, yeah, I think people are looking at proof of reserves, ways of programmatically proving that the assets are actually held by the business and are not being re used so yeah i mean um lots of governments are looking at this i think we're probably going to end up seeing something come more from the industry itself rather than from regulators but yeah we're we're keen to see. i think it's it's going to be um uh something that the the industry needs to get its hands around um and i think whatever's delivered is probably going to be more of a global programmatic solution than um than a specific regulatory solution in any one country
19: Can I I I add a comment on that?
6: Um, Yes, please, Adam, go ahead.
19: So one really interesting analogy we can look at in crypto is the shipping industry. Because if you think about it, ships, and and I know not everything is a DAO, but ships and DAOs are kind of similar in the sense that they kind of live everywhere and nowhere all at the same time. But shipping has been around forever. And there's this whole set of international law, private law, uh, that even goes beyond any one government. Uh, deciding what that law should be and yet it's something that organizations can opt into and follow so i think i like what simon is saying there may be an opportunity here to create something that's actually non-governmental but still creates a legal and regulatory framework that helps drive the industry forward
4: yeah i mean the the key thing really is is the auditability of a blockchain um if 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 something is being held on a blockchain then anyone in the world that actually has the address of that asset can can view it and see that it's there on the blockchain and that it hasn't moved or can see the amount of that asset that's held on the blockchain. So that auditability is something that's quite unique versus anything we've had before. When uh, banks were holding gold for investors and then issuing either electronic money or paper money off the back of that, people were always relying upon uh, human auditors to go in and, and check that the gold was there. In reality, the only way you can really verify gold uh, is to melt it down and recast it. Uh, but ultimately, you're still relying upon a human third party to do that audit for you. So that's where we have the potential. I think, I mean, the, the whole DAO, DAO situation is very interesting as well because a DAO token um, is, is something that, that people can own in the first person. In reality, the way most companies are structured, most, most investor situations are held through nominee accounts uh, because digital shares can't actually be owned by individuals. So yeah, we have that nominee structure there. That's something that has quietly uh, replaced the uh, the paper share ownership situation. And um, so yeah, it's I think that there's a lot of hope there for, for DAO tokens representing digitally-ownable assets by, by people around the world
6: so maybe then to add a open question here yeah so please feel free to answer uh, any of you um if we look at the earlier sort of more philosophical underpinnings of blockchain technology which touches a lot on what simon just said um and then we compare it to where we are today in terms of you know how blockchain is used for, for different business purposes and different industries. And then we all ha- we, we also have the blockchain industry or the Web3 or the crypto industry, which is an industry in and of itself. Um, where do we kind of go to look for the, the, the middle ground between these two points? Um, if it's only for the sake of business to the point where almost what the technology stands for and what it's designed for is no longer really applicable, or on the other side, you know, you have uh, blockchain maxis, I can almost say, where it's okay, it's only used for, you know, whether it's Bitcoin or whether it's the blockchain technology itself, and there shouldn't be an industry on top of it. Where do we kind of meet in the middle? Uh, please, anyone.
20: I, th- I think with this, it's uh, we're, whether we're looking at the box or meeting in the middle, like thinking outside the box, because with the DAOs and with the blockchain technology, we're starting to question the necessity of the nation state and how it's being involved in our personal lives. There's always going to be a need for the nation state, for the physical use of force to uh, like protect us, for the police forces, for the militaries of the world. But whenever it comes down to our economic livelihood, how much supervision do we need from the government? And blockchain and DAOs specifically they take that question out of there because the community has an unprecedented level of control because to a computer we're all ones and zeros. Now going the, going the whole back way back to Plato, you're looking at what's the problem with the po- democracy. In a democracy, if there are five people and you're the one with the bike, guess what? At the end of the vote, you're probably not going to be the one with the bike. However, with the DAOs, when you've got millions and millions of people with equal votes around the world common sense starts to work in where people say well i have what i what i earned i want to keep that and it gives us this ability to have a governance that is actually of the people by the people and for the people because the unions the political parties the monopolies aren't involved anymore and they're giving a voice to the people to how to control their own wealth. And that's really, I think, where we're going. We're not going to meet in the middle. We're meeting somewhere outside of the box. And I mean, at least that's my two cents on it.
4: It is um, It is definitely a different paradigm. I think that the smart contracts are a, a very significant um, part of the revolution. The fact that you can have a, a hard-coded reward system uh, which doesn't need to fall back upon a legal system is is significant. You know, as long as the code says that somebody will be awarded uh, with a a crypto asset in certain provable circumstances, and and that reward code says so, means that you don't need to fall back upon a legal system to enforce the payment. It it, it simply is that the code is law.
19: I might share a slightly different view. I I am so optimistic about Web3 and crypto, but I'm not sure I see us going all the way from the systems we have today to a future where everything is completely democratic completely decentralized, like no like no unions, no political parties, all that stuff, I think we'll probably, I think we're introducing a new being into the world that will compete with all of the others. And it will radically transform the way things work, right? So to be specific, you know, DAOs, what they allow organizations to do, and again, whether it's a political party, a union, a company, a charity, is to be much more democratic in how they're governed. And I think you know just uh, just on philosophy i believe that people whether they're customers of a tool like facebook or users of a tool like facebook or employees choosing what company to work for in the long run they will given the choice choose the more democratic option over the less democratic option, but at the same time, you'll still have people in the world who are saying, well, I'm going to start something that is top down and I'm going to compete with the organization that's not top down, right? Or my democratic group of a hundred people is now going to control a larger group of a thousand people and, and, you know, control some aspect of their lives. So I guess I kind of see a future where there are You know there's this giant network of organizations and people and you have some of the old kind some of the new kind and a lot of stuff that's somewhere in between and actually i think a really good example of this is you mentioned we'll never get rid of the nation state what about the network state right i think the network state will actually eventually compete with the nation state for that monopoly over the use of violence and power and uh, in the future we'll have something in between that is you'll have network states you'll have nation states you'll have other things that are somewhere in between.
13: Those are all such cool points. I mean, when I think about answering a question like this, it's really hard because there's so many different facets that this technology has branched off into. Obviously, when we think about the public infrastructure for finance it's cash and so for the first time in history we have bitcoin and we have the ability to say that pandora's box is open and that we can transact with each other whether you like it or not right and and no matter what the regulation says we're gonna have you know a small portion of the eight billion people that exist on this planet to say i don't care i'm gonna do this and yet the altcoins that we see help facilitate and create a monetized vehicle for business for you know communities for charities for social good and it's immature at the point but at the same time my mind has been blown by seeing how technically savvy this technology is being built in the right directions while we we manage through the malicious entities, of course. But I think on a global scale, we have unlocked a lot to take a look at. What does it look like for all of us to own our own data and to flip the script on some of the machines that we are embedded into? And what will that do for generational wealth? What will that do for countries that don't have things coming in directly to them? I think that there's going to be a lot of great impact, but it's going to be a war and a struggle to make sure that it's headed into the right direction. And for that, we have people like this on panels making sure that we're marching to the same beat of the drum.
19: Yeah, because you could use the same technology to create an ultra capitalist society or an ultra socialist one, right? I mean, we're giving people tools to organize better around whatever ends they seek
13: yeah and it's almost you know i'll say this to you adam i think we met at decentraland because i remember your dow especially that it was in the marshall islands because i'm micronesian so i'm from the federated states of micronesia and for a lot of ways with new technology and adoption i've thought about it almost the reverse that we've seen other technological curves you know kind of happenstance out and this is underperforming, uh, under underserved communities and countries are sometimes the easiest to transform, which is why I commemorate your ability to go into a place nobody knows about. It's just like XRPs and their ability to transact in Palau, also in Micronesia. But I also think too, and I've talked about this with Jackie that, also generations. I think that the oldest generation that we have on the planet right now is the first generation that we need to make sure that this technology touches as we watch the biggest wealth transfer go down to the next generation. Um, And so a lot of these things kind of like really cause you to think in opposite terms of what is the new future and how do we take different steps and do things differently today to make sure that it happens
6: tomorrow
20: that's an amazing
6: I want to ask, so, sorry, Chris, uh, maybe maybe you can start by asking this question after you leave your comment. Um, I want to then know if this is what we are striving towards, but as Carmen says, it's going to be a struggle, and we really have to make sure that we take this in the right direction. What is it that is needed uh, for us to take these steps and ensure that it is in the direction that we want it to go. How do we collectively agree on what is the right direction? What is the what is the the framework that we all need to kind of come together under? Is there a framework such as this or should there be one?
20: I, I think there is a framework. It's kind of a natural law framework, kind of like going with Descartes that it is the laws that everybody should be able to agree on. And I think that's what scares a lot of the government, especially here in the United States, where we have some good laws coming out right now and bad laws coming out, is that the blockchain gives people control over their own wealth. And while the blockchain sees us as just numbers, we're not a social security number. We're not a government product that we can be used out pay taxes until we get so old given a little bit of money and then they hope we die before our social security runs out This is a situation where people can control their own wealth that they can have their voice and that's where we need to start Whenever we set up this framework People having a voice and people having control of their own wealth And I don't want to go into too much detail on it because I know that i'm going to hear some great answers from the other people on this panel
2: I'll
6: so add to it's that. To hear your oh, yeah.
13: for it. I'll, I'll hop in because I think in order for us to move forward, forward for a brighter tomorrow using this technology, I think as a collective community, we have to first prove that the tools can be trusted. So I see so much great tech out there, so many brilliant minds, but I think we need the world, the world's Brightest minds, biggest hearts and deepest pockets to come into here to make sure that we can be that we can facilitate making sure that wallets are safe that exchanges are safe. What we have just experienced in a short amount of time of watching stable coins go unstable centralized institutions go under the knife for doing malicious things doesn't look good for us. So we have to get back to building trust that when we say that we are passionate about the potential of this technology, we can also say that the foundation has been set, come in and play.
19: And maybe a great recent example of how the foundation is working is uh, a couple days ago or yesterday when there was a rumor that a Bitcoin ETF had been approved, the price of Bitcoin shot up and DeFi, in DeFi, $100 million worth of loans got liquidated right away because people had short positions. Now, if this was like the world of FTX and Genesis and DCG and all this stuff, there would have been like, okay, we're liquidating you. Oh, wait, sorry, we don't have the money anymore, right? And oh, by the way, it belong to our customers. So there's definitely a lot of things going wrong, but at the same time, I think it's easy to miss the things that are going really well, I think people underestimate the value of.
6: I want to ask a follow-up question to this example that you gave, Adam, uh, about the Co- the Cointelegraph tweet uh, that was misinformed and, of course, led to this uh, huge shift in the market with 100 uh, million uh, liquidated. Um, when we go back to the concept of regulation and whether regulation is important or not or kind of where it slots into this technology and this industry um, and the accountability associated there with, Um, There was a lot of talk in the media about, you know, the movement that the market then ended up uh, taking and because of this tweet, but not so much about the fact that a media publication has the ability to with one tweet move the market in that way. Um, So it's interesting then to reflect on if we talk about, you know, having this self sovereignty, being able to really use the technology. to, you know, express ourselves in in the ways that we really have the birthright to, but because of government, uh, you know, sort of design being the the way that it is, this technology now offers the alternative. But then should there also be at some levels top down regulation that prevents things such as this from happening, or at least that there would be consequences uh, when it does happen? Uh, Simon, maybe we can start with you
4: yeah i think um i'm going to take quite a purist view on that one and say yeah what, what we what we do have is a self-sovereign asset system and the events that happened there with that short squeeze were only made possible by the fact that assets were being held on custodial exchanges so the the fact that people are leaving their assets on the exchanges means that they are available to be short sold and um, human beings are human beings if there's money to be made by short selling those assets then they will do so so in, in many ways it's up to the individual to take responsibility for their own assets that is that the opportunity that we have with uh with crypto and the sooner we we all learn to do that the the, the better the markets are for everybody
6: and so comment maybe I can ask you then because you fulfill this role where you talk to corporates and you also i presume speak to people at a more intro level to to blockchain because of the nature of your work um where do you see this role of self-sovereign responsibility come in when you know that speaking to a lot of people the technology and everything that is associated with uh is is really complex and difficult to wrap people's heads around and i think we'll yeah we'll make that the final question before we wrap up in uh, because of time <laughs>
13: I mean, it, the difficulty is on my shoulders to make it simple to understand. And, you know, when it comes down to it, for example, with Adam's example, somebody taking from a Telegram channel the news that something is Is a standard that globally we need to change. That there's, you know, that we're going to skip steps of holding people accountable and making sure that we vet and do due diligence because we want to be first. And if we can eradicate those sensibilities, and, you know, my value system on chain is change minds, change results, change behaviors, and change the expectations. In this case, it's to change the standards who in their right mind would take from a chat, you know, news that's going to create momentum and be a catalyst to, to people's wallets and their portfolios. When we make that an inherent feeling by giving people the ability to calm down, relax, and trust that as a scientist, I can search for truth but I need some data that I can trust in order to draw conclusions. And that's what an immutable ledger does. And then when you layer a blockchain on top of that and you start to monetize and create a financial vehicle that can be used around the planet, we gotta make sure that we're teaching people some of the mindset and standards that they're gonna have to change because it's not gonna be the same world. So we're we're gonna have to start with keeping it simple.
19: I love the example of uh, knowing what information you can believe or not, because there's some really compelling technology coming out. I mean, everything from a a trusted hardware and a camera that has GPS, that can sign a message with the location when the photo is taken so that everyone in the world can verify this picture really did come from side A or side B of a war zone or whatever it is, and that that dated time to using Web3 Social to have uh, kind of a chain of custody of where the information first came from all the way through to when it's posted. Right? Just like today in your browser, you don't, I mean, we don't even look anymore for the little lock that you used to look for to make sure there was a lock before you put your credit card in. Now everyone has the lock. But I think pretty soon there's going to be another little lock that's you know red, yellow, or green that tells you whether the information on the page is likely to be, at least there's a chain of custody where someone at the end of the day has signed something. And that's a person that people have listened to in the past, or they'll get penalized if it turns out it's it's fake news or false information. I think we're so close to this stuff. I, I so, really Adam I,
6: you you've, you've painted a, a a bleak picture so Chris uh, yeah would you want to add to the bleak picture or do you want to make it a little brighter?
20: Um I'm going to go the dark way with him. I I mo as a journalist, I mean, I write for a national newspaper. I write for several of them. I've been featured in a lot of big journals and there's a level of accountability for academics Where if we go on, if I will go on Harvard Business Review or something like that and say something that is completely asinine, my department chair is going to hold me accountable for that. In the United States, we don't have that same standard for journalists. We're treating journalists like meme lords, where they can put out whatever they want to get people excited because they want that sweep. And there was a day when if you were a journalist, you could be held accountable for putting something false out but it has gotten to where if you turn on fox news or cnn or msnbc and look at the actual content of what is considered news by the station versus what is opinion pieces you're going to find that there's about three hours of news on each of those stations each day and a lot of that news is even arguable whereas if you look at the medium-sized news networks out there um nrn or um like even something as much as I don't like the Huffington post, like there, they have some accountability and whenever you let, I guess the media get too big where you have a monopoly where there are only five companies that own all of the media outlets in the United States and around most of the world, where is the accountability? When does it become, where's the line between media and the department of propaganda? And until people out on the street, See where that line is. And I think the world's waking up to that. So maybe it is getting a little bit brighter. The dawn is coming. But until we see that, people are still going to say, well, if that were true, I would have heard it on the news. And that's the scariest thing that you can hear a person say in the world today. Because we saw, like at the beginning of COVID, like people being like, oh, if you do this, it'll fix you completely. Or if you inject yourself with chlorine, it'll fix you completely. And they saw it on some news site. And who was held accountable for that? And that's really the question. They're blaming crypto for all these problems. Sam Bankman-Fried got out of jail and while he was still in jail was making another scam. Who is accountable for watching over his shoulder? We know the guy's name. He's down there in a three-letter agency in Washington, D.C. And there's one congressman in the country asking for him to be held accountable and the rest of the country is just looking the other way.
0: So I think we've had some great discussions on this panel. Simon, I'm just going to ask you to do a quick um, wrap up on a future thing that you see happening within our blockchain world. I know that you've been involved in a lot of different things. So a really quick wrap up because almost everyone on this panel has had a chance, but you're you're the last one standing. So what would you like to share?
4: Um, so yeah, just referencing something you said there, Chris, uh, with regards to uh, the media and uh, COVID, something that that I think was probably quite well underreported was the fact that a lot of um, internet media services, be they newspapers or or video feeds, actually went behind a paywall just as uh, COVID got started. So it was it was a real opportunity for those those organisations to to monetise. You know through a, a situation of adversity I'm gonna see with crypto is the opportunity to have pay-as-you-go media using um, using microtransactions so when you want to read an article and um, they try to force you into a subscription quite from quite um, quite often offering you a free trial which you're going to forget about and end up paying for um, you can have instead a low-cost crypto transaction where you can pay for individual items of media without getting tied into a subscription for those uh, for those feeds.
0: Nadja, I want to ask you this. You're a digital nomad. You've traveled the world. You do business all around the world. What do you see? Because I know you're very insightful. And so I'll let you end the panel discussion because this whole, this whole time with this education summit, we've had so many wonderful conversations. So what kind of wrap up would you like to share?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think we've had a very interesting panel, uh, you know, kind of just where we started off to end it, where we ended up uh, really just shows how much nuance there is to these discussions, to this technology, to this industry, and really to all of the industries that it touches. Uh, And I think the one thing really to take away from this is, you know, this this quote, I think it's a Spider-Man quote, uh, with great power comes great responsibility. And I think ultimately, that is the one thing that comes to mind, because whether the future of this technology and its involvement in our everyday lives uh, are in the hands of regulators, whether it is in the hands of businesses, whether it is in the hands of individuals, ultimately, it comes down to having accountability, having responsibility, really having a vision for where things are going, and also then having the power and the ability to take it in that direction. Uh, and ultimately I think it's an open question whether we are going in exactly the right direction that we want to go. but I think you know as as Adam touched on Adam just to kind of encapsulate here, when I said earlier about having a, a bleak uh, perspective it was more in the case that in the sense that things can get to the level where we need to kind of you know put the things over our over our computers. But then also something positive to take away from that is that we do still have the power and the ability, for example, to cover it over, uh, you know, the, the to, to make the choices as much as we are able to make choices confined within the boundaries that we are in. Uh, so, yeah, really that I think uh, just to end of the panel and then maybe then just to, you know, at a larger uh, scale end of the conversation as well is it really ultimately depends on each and every one of us uh, where our contributions are going to lead us. So, thank you very much everyone for a really insightful panel. I actually have to go back and listen to it myself and I would invite people to do the same because I think they were lots of gems and nuggets in there for different people to take away. Uh, And then, of course, to Jackie uh, and the team at Blockchain Legal Institute, thank you so much for putting together this amazing event. Uh, Very much enjoyed the insights and looking forward to the next one.
0: For sure, we we are definitely um, excited about the next one, which is going to be on February seventh. And the other thing that I want to share with everyone who is listening: this will be recorded. It is being recorded, so that way you will be able to revisit this. And there'll also be a free ebook, which will have the context for everyone who are the speakers, so that way you can reach out and see the wonderful projects that they're working on. So while this panel leaves. We have a wonderful EndNote speaker, and I want to thank everyone who's been on this panel. Thank you so much, because I know some of you are from different time zones. So Simon and everyone else who's been on, thank you so much. Um, and Nadja as well. I know it's like 4 or 5 a.m. in the morning for you, and you know everyone else who's here, if it's time zone, I don't remember. Um, but everyone, uh, while they hop out, stay on. We are going to be moving our is out, and our endnote speaker in, and Matt is going to introduce our endnote speaker. So, thank you, everyone. Talk to you soon. Everyone else, stay on.
1: Thanks, Jackie. Yeah, huge thank yous to everyone in other time zones. We know how it is, and uh, it's a big part of our global global experience now. Is just to be available and, and contribute to the dialogue no matter where we are. Uh, it's exciting. So, we do have uh, closing closing remarks. And it's been quite a quite an afternoon. We're over here on the East Coast. There he is. Uh, this is a friend of ours and an educator, and someone that has their eye uh both on the community by operating a DAO and they're a real DAO doing real things. Um I don't, I don't want to say any more than that, other than check out the ED3 DAO if you want to see a great community at work, and uh also involved in let's call it like some of the U.S. discussion about um, you know, policy and regulation. So Mike, thank you for being here. You're on mute, but uh, get off mute and uh, maybe introduce yourself and then give us some uh, some of your thoughts on, on what you heard tonight.
21: Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Matt and Jackie for putting this together. Um, I, I had an opportunity to listen to uh, all the panels this evening and um, a couple of things that just immediately stand out to me. And, and that is that, um, as we walk through sort of this intersection between uh, law, technology, and and, and social good, um, you know these conversations just reinforced how critical the connection is between policy regulation and the transformative power of blockchain. Um, our conversations spanned everything from the potential for blockchain to transform. Um, media and, and technology and media, to uh, nations who are really pioneering pace for blockchain regulation in the financial sector, to uh, how blockchain can be leveraged for, for public goods. And it's painted a very clear picture of the, the really expansive opportunities that exist uh, within a well-regulated uh, blockchain framework. And the ripple effects of those frameworks can, can be not just on the financial sector, but of course on, on social inclusion as well, particularly in underserved communities. It's really a testament to the, the transformative power of blockchain. Um, at Ed3DAO, I'm, I'm humbled uh, to lead alongside my co-founder, Vridi Saraf, and our organization really stands at the confluence of education and Web3 technologies. Our mission is very clear and uh, that is to onboard educators into the world of Web3 um, by providing them really important knowledge, skills and dispositions to educate our young minds that are really gonna take uh, these new technologies to the next level. Um, but our, our vision really is moving beyond that. Uh, we're moving beyond literacy to begin to look at things like how we can leverage these, uh, these technology solutions to enhance teaching and learning Um, And more recently been involved in in some advocacy work, uh, both at the federal level with uh, Stand With Crypto, where we joined other founders from across uh, the Web3 ecosystem to meet with policymakers and discuss how uh, a, a vote for technology in Web 3.0 is, is not just a vote for NFTs or tokens. It, it's a vote for innovation and the future um, that enables us to really transform uh, both finance and society through these new technologies. And so, in reflecting on today's conversation, it's really clear that, that regulatory frameworks are a pivotal part of the blockchain narrative. And to continue to propel that narrative forward, education is really a critical linchpin. And at Ed3DAO, um, our initiatives really resonate with the spirit of responsible innovation and and informed regulation that underpin much of what was being discussed throughout this summit. And so the, the fusion of law, technology, and education isn't just a distant aspiration, but really a tangible reality we all are collaboratively forging right now. And as builders in Web3, um, we bear a responsibility to uh, really make these very complex things accessible through education and to foster a culture of understanding and inclusivity that really transcends technical jargon. And it's through education that we can really unlock the potential of blockchain Um, to ensure that it's harnessed not just for technical prowess, but also for its ethical um, discernment and also um, societal betterment at its core. And so I leave with this, and and really, as we stand on this kind of cusp of a new era of of the internet powered by blockchain, uh, the call to action is really compelling. Uh, Let's harness the exponential power of blockchain and craft a world where opportunity is not just a right but a sorry not just a privilege but a right and where education is a catalyst for economic and societal transformation um, together you know we can continue to be the vanguards of change and nurturing a culture of lifelong learning um, through this curiosity and the remarkable realm of, of blockchain and beyond and so you know today's conversations i think really left for me um, the clear call to action, and that is that we can't just talk about the future of tomorrow, we have to build it. And so I thank you all for joining us this evening. Uh, once again, thank you, Matt and Jackie for the opportunity to to share some final thoughts on this uh, wonderful event and look forward to the next one.
1: Well, thank you for that uh, great summary and inspiration. And it would just be my pleasure to offer Jackie uh, the microphone here to wrap up and then uh, Ivan can can close the broadcast.
0: Now, I appreciate, um, Mike, You know what you shared. Um, it is about innovation and it's about education and it's about making sure that those who don't know understand so that way they have um, the research and the resources. And that's why the Blockchain Legal Institute was created. It's a centralized library for decentralized resources. It's not just about the laws, it's about the content. But we have to educate not just the youth, we have to educate the adults. Um, And we're not just about mass adoption, we're about mass education, because in order for creativity to happen, and for some of the the topics that actually were discussed on all three panels, in terms of privacy, you know, data collection, social good, you know, all these things can happen. And blockchain is simply a tool to make it happen. But really, it's a tool people are involved with any tool and with any business and with any community. And we have to look at what our social problems are and how do we solve them? And how do we use the technology that's available to us to solve it and not just look at it as a tool that's not going to be helpful. So um, we have too much going on in our world and we need to be looking out for each other. So um, with that, you know, I appreciate everyone who's hopped on live stream, Matt, Mike, again, this has been a great opportunity. There's a lot more conversation that can be had and will be had. And we appreciate everyone uh, who's been on watching. So thank you so much for being on.
1: Have a good night, everybody. Bye. Thanks again. Ciao.